Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction, a podcast that brings you award-winning stories of William H. Coles, the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Today, we have the acclaimed novel, Guardian of Deceit, a character-based story with dramatic plot, great characters, and intriguing settings, and hundreds of top reviews. This is the first of three episodes, so let's get started. Part 1 Chapter 1 Darwin Hastings shouldered his backpack to be doing something and checked to see his ticket was still in his jacket side pocket. With the call for boarding, he stepped to the gate, walked down the covered walkway, and showed his ticket stub to the flight attendant, who pointed him to the fifth-row window seat. The empty tension of being homeless and alone captured him. He tried to appear confident and in control. Minutes later, an older woman with smog gray hair pulled into a tight bun leaned over from the aisle. I'd like the window seat, young man. The grating, demanding tone of her voice flustered him. He felt ashamed he wasn't more resilient. He checked his ticket again. You need to step out to let me in, she said. There are people waiting. This is my seat, he said, pointing to the stub and not knowing what he should do. You can sit in my middle seat, she said impatiently, ignoring his evidence. I like the window, he said. He wished he'd been more assertive. The woman waved her hand toward the front of the plane. Stewardess, she yelled. Was this to be his new life? Ordered around by domineering strangers, with him unable to succeed when he was clearly in the right? The flight attendant arrived and examined tickets. You're in the middle, she said to the woman. They told me they had no window seats, but I could switch when I was inside, the woman said. The flight attendant leaned over to Darwin. Would you mind, she asked, her forced smile ready to disappear. Darwin climbed out of his seat into the aisle. The old woman was already moving to take the window seat when she said to Darwin, Would you put that green overnight bag in the overhead for me? He decided it wasn't important enough to object. He lifted the bag easily into the overhead. He sat down in the middle seat and searched for his seat belt. A gray-suited, middle-aged man sat next to him in the aisle seat and slipped an expensive-looking leather briefcase under the seat in front of him. The plane took off. At 10,000 feet, Darwin reached into his backpack for earphone plugs and his digital player. You shouldn't do that. It'll make you retarded, the old woman said to Darwin. That is ridiculous, the man next to Darwin said in a deep, rich, authoritative voice. A lot you know, the woman said. I am a physician. Well, those things make you deaf, and then you become retarded. Not deaf, if the volume is at a reasonable level, and never retarded. Darwin tucked the player and the earplugs back into his backpack. The man sat rigid with his back straight. Darwin straightened his spine. Is he your father? The woman asked Darwin. I am not his father, the man said. I am dedicated to halting misleading and erroneous information, especially in matters of health. I am not stupid, the woman said. That's arguable, 
the man said under his breath, but loud enough for Darwin to hear. Why are you traveling alone? the woman asked Darwin. Darwin didn't answer. Where are your parents, boy? In Pittsburgh? she persisted. Dead, said Darwin. They died. That should end the conversation, he thought. Oh, you poor boy. I'm so sorry. Are you going home? I'm going to my cousin's. He's a famous football player. You're leaving Pittsburgh? Yes, ma'am. The woman looked out of the window into a cloud to ponder the developments. Who is your cousin? The man asked after a few minutes. He'd been reading a medical journal. Luther Pinelli. You're going to live with him? With Luther? Yes, sir. What an opportunity, he said. The woman leaned slightly over Darwin toward the man to give him a spiteful frown. How could living with a football player be an opportunity? They take drugs, you know, to make them play better. It's on the television. My cousin doesn't do that, Darwin said emphatically, angered by her assuredness without fact. I don't believe it, the woman said. He's among the best-paid athletes in the world, the man said. Ridiculous, the woman said. Money doesn't excuse performance enhancement in sports. You a fan? Darwin asked the woman. I don't like football at all. It's sexist, horridly violent. They can't remember anything when they get older. Football is no more sexist than giving birth, the doctor declared. If you have the skills and the capabilities, you participate. No one stops you because of your gender. Any woman who can throw a ball 70 yards or knock down a 300-pound tackle would be welcomed on a team, the man said. He laughed softly. That makes no sense, you smart aleck. Too complicated for you, he said. Well, it isn't right for a nice young man to live with a brain-damaged football player as a father substitute. He's not brain damaged, Darwin said. How would you know? Sometimes it doesn't show up right away. She made a hissing sound. He's done a lot with his life, Darwin said. But, in fact, he didn't really know Luther. He had seen his cousin twice in his entire life, years ago. They're all evil. Hurting each other, spitting, cursing, the woman said. You watch the games, then, the doctor said, taunting her. She looked out the window. Only the Steelers, she said so softly that only Darwin heard. Darwin felt a flush of superiority. Luther was among the best. He played his college ball at LSU. He held records that only a few might break. Most valuable player. He'd made millions from endorsements. He'd met the president and hung out with the famous. And Luther was kin, related by blood. After the drink service, the old woman placed her trash on Darwin's tray to clear her table to work a crossword puzzle she had torn out of the in-flight magazine. Darwin held his tongue. "'Don't you have family in Pittsburgh?' the woman said without looking at him. "'My aunt,' Darwin said. "'Aunt sent him to a private school and gave him a bedroom in her house after his mom and dad died. "'He'd looked out for himself, too. Had to. "'Aunt didn't cook much.' and he got his own meals, and she rarely talked to him. She was widowed a year after her wedding, and had lived alone for forty years. Although she was not mean, she had an easily surfaced irritation with life, 
and Darwin had quickly learned to avoid her dark moods. But she had loved him. He was sure of that. Now she had lost her lower left leg to diabetes and had to be transferred to a nursing facility for assisted living, and she worried about Darwin. She insisted only illness would make her break the vow she had made with his mother as teens to always take care of each other's family, no matter what happened. A vow Darwin had heard every time the two sisters met in his presence, or at least it seemed that way. Aunt had wept when he left this morning. She had made him promise to return for the holidays, her expressionless face denying that they both knew that that was unlikely. "'Are you in school?' the man asked. "'Junior, what do you want to do?' "'Go to medical school. My father was a doctor.' "'What kind?' "'An internist.' "'You a good student?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Top of the class?' "'Yes, sir.' After the plane landed, the man stood, got his bag from the overhead, and leaned over to Darwin. "'Don't remember anything that desiccated witch said,' he whispered. "'Luther Pinelli is a great man,' he shook his head. "'Luther Pinelli,' he said louder in a tone of respect and wonder. "'It will be great for you. You'll be a great doctor.' He handed Darwin his professional business card. Call me if you ever need help, he said. We live in the Hamptons close to Luther, almost walking distance. I'll be in touch. He walked down the aisle. Darwin looked at the card. Adrian Malvern, M.D., Ph.D., M.B.A., F.A.C.S. Darwin got out to let the old woman leave first. Don't grow up to be rude to mature women, she said as she turned up the aisle. Darwin retrieved her bag for her, and then, with his backpack, followed her into the terminal. He found his baggage at a luggage carousel and waited. Luther's private limo took him from the airport to the Pinelli mansion. The electric motors of the iron gates whined as the limo passed the guardhouse to enter the estate and then curve among stately oaks along the quarter-mile drive. The limo stopped in front of Luther's mansion among four Corinthian columns supporting a pediment portico towering two stories. The limo driver opened the car door for Darwin and then carried his bag to the entrance. Darwin waited alone before panel double doors. The limo left. He pushed the button that rang the chimes. The uniform maid let him in without greeting and departed to the back of the house through a swinging door at the end of the foyer the size of a horse barn. The house was tomb quiet. Darwin scanned the artwork on the wall, mostly abstract. The most prominent framed oil painting was panel truck size and had violent slashes of dark violet splashed with red and yellow on a coal-black background. It commanded Darwin's attention. A middle-aged woman with short brown hair and a thin, efficient smile walked up. Her footsteps on the oak flooring echoed in the hall. I'm Mrs. Thomas, house manager. She looked up at Darwin through myopic glasses, not unfriendly, but with a tinge of disinterest. I'm Luther's cousin. I know who you are. Luther is not here. She tugged at his sleeve. I'll show you your room. She walked in front of him to the north wing of the ground floor, through the kitchen and the laundry facility, 
to a room next to a covered walkway that led to the six-car garage. She stopped at what had been a utility room. The room was bare except for a rolled-up mattress on the floor with a hand pump for inflation, a stack of folded faded linens, and a blanket. There's a toilet just down the hall just before you get to the kitchen, she said. She led him back toward the foyer. She pointed to two closed double-pocket doors. That's Granny's quarters. She demands absolute silence. She pointed to a door at the back wall of the foyer. That leads to the basement gym and rec rooms. Luther parties down there sometimes. You can watch TV there when someone's not using it. She pointed to another door in a corner. When you want to bathe, that leads to the pool. Use soap only in the cabana showers. You can leave your swimsuit in one of the lockers. Leave towels in the bin. I don't have a swimsuit, Darwin said. They walked through the kitchen into a back hall that led to the external covered walkway that led to a freestanding garage. This is the best way to get to the pool without walking through the house. Find something to make do. Or swim at night with the lights off when no one can see. Luther hasn't approved any expenditures for you. Not even a bathing suit, Darwin thought. He expected money from his trust distribution. Aunt had told him. He would always be grateful for her dependability. She had never failed to meet his needs. I'll need to get to my allowance, he said to Mrs. Thomas. Mrs. Thomas led Darwin back to his room. Get settled in, she said. I'll leave a note for Andre that you'll be in the kitchen at six o'clock for your first meal. He's the chef. Do you have a watch? Yes, ma'am. Set it on Eastern. Pittsburgh's on Eastern. And don't call me ma'am. I'm Mrs. Thomas. He looked away, hesitant now to speak. Darwin surveyed his bare storeroom. Through a small window at shoulder height, he could see the pool. Shelves on the two windowless walls were cleared, but stains and crumbs remained on the bare boards, and rags and a dustpan cluttered the bottom shelves. The floor was clean, but the walls and shelving had residual dust and grime, with light and dark patches where the paint had not faded from items not removed for years. Darwin found his bags, carried by he knew not whom from the front of the house, stacked next to a trunk shipped by freight from his aunt's house weeks ago. The inflatable mattress, bed linens, and a blanket were untouched. He sat on the trunk. He missed aunt now. He refused to let moisture run from his eyes. He wiped it away, not knowing what his future might bring or how he would shape his own destiny left him with a new sense of insecurity and apprehension. When would he be back in school? School was easy for him, and he enjoyed learning. He must see Luther to get some of his money. Aunt had given him a regular allowance, an extra when he needed it, from what his parents had entrusted to her for his upkeep until he was of age, when he could fully access his inheritance and trust fund. As his new guardian, surely Luther would give him the same. That would be the first thing he'd do tomorrow, talk to Luther. His parents were dead a little more than five years now. He missed them. He cherished the idyllic memories, filtered by time, of his loving parents, of the love they had for each other and for him. 
he yearned for the comfort of the love he'd lost. With luck and hard work, he thought being with Luther would open up opportunities to be a family again. He unpacked, stacking his shirts and socks and underwear on the cleanest shelves along the wall. He hung his pants and jacket on wooden pegs and twisted wire hooks behind the door. He placed his toiletries on a shelf nearest the door, so not to forget on his way to the half-bathroom. He inflated the mattress, applied the sheets, folded a blanket so he had two layers. Then he lay down to wait for his meal. Early the next day, Darwin explored the grounds. The pool and cabana dominated the back of the house. Fifty yards from the pool, near the twelve-foot walled enclosure that surrounded the property, were three two-story, townhouse-shaped connected apartments. Behind the garage, covering most of the land near the rear of the property, were a putting green, a driving range, and three holes of golf designed in a rough triangle with a short hole at the base near the wall. When he thought the time was appropriate, he went to find Luther. He found only Colette the maid, who said Luther had not been home in days and that they didn't expect him until after the Dallas game. He found Mrs. Thomas, the house manager, in her office on the ground floor of her townhouse quarters. "'What do you want?' Mrs. Thomas said, looking up, her finger hooked through the handle of a coffee mug on the desk in front of her. "'I was wondering about my parents' money. My aunt sent it to Luther. "'I'm the house manager. I'm not responsible for your money,' she said, obviously put off by his intrusion. "'Where do I find out?' "'Ask the accountant. Where is he?' He works in this city with the agent and the manager of Pinelli Enterprises. She looked at him for many seconds, deciding what she was willing to do. Sit down, she said, looking away with exasperation. He was very close to her, in the chair in front of her desk. Her look seemed far more hostile than her aloofness of yesterday. She flipped through a Rolodex and called the accountant. Luther would be the appointed guardian by bank trustees as of the first of the month, she said, in accordance with the provisions of the wills of the parents. The bank in Pittsburgh would transfer funds monthly for Darwin's care. Yes, Darwin would have to talk to Luther about details. Luther would be responsible for disbursement of Darwin's allowance money until he was of age, when he would control his inheritance through the trustees in Pittsburgh and all fund distributions would come directly to him. How do I get to talk to him, Darwin asked. Now, that is a problem for all of us. Darwin lowered his head and stared at the floor. Mrs. Thomas sighed and stood to indicate his time was up. Look, I have my regular meeting with him next week. You come, and we'll get him to make some decisions about what I should do with you. He sensed less antagonism now a sort of toleration of a new responsibility. He still had $48.38 from what he'd been given to him by aunt when he left Pittsburgh. But how would he get toothpaste and batteries, and where? And the $50 he had hidden in the lining of his trunk wasn't enough for emergencies. He'd have to figure out a way to build a reserve. What about school, he asked. I don't know, she said, now with irritation again. I guess I'll have to find out how to get you into a public school in town. I went to Carnegie Academy Day School. You can't get into private school here, 
Luther is a social inadequate. The neighbors think of him as a cultural gorilla. He gave her a questioning frown. He's big, hairy, inarticulate, crass, and unpleasant to be around. He looks good on TV, Darwin countered. Look, the men in this neighborhood get pedicures once a week for poolside charisma. The women drink herbal teas in porcelain cups they claim to have been used in the palace of Marie Antoinette. Most of them don't know how much they have in the bank and resent nouveau riche bums like Luther. You're his ward. There is no possibility he can get you in a private school, so don't even think about it. But he needed the best education at the best schools to get into a quality college and medical school. He didn't complain. This wasn't the time to bring it up. But he'd have to solve the problem soon. Chapter 2 Darwin walked back into the house through the front door. The usually closed, double-sliding pocket doors to Granny's rooms were open. She lived in what had once been a ballroom with two rooms added in the back, one converted into a TV room for her, the other into a bedroom with a full bath. Granny was rolling around in an electric wheelchair and came at Darwin as if he were a stunt ramp and she was attempting to make a record jump. She was thin and wiry. Her gray hair exploded from her skull, and she made no attempt to control the wild look it gave her of a jungle savage. Her face was lined, her mouth sour and downturned. But her blue eyes were bright and quick and shifted here and there without obvious purpose. She braked her vehicle and looked up at Darwin. Hello, he said, lacking memory of an appropriate greeting for what might be an insane person. She was already looking around the room, making hissing sounds with her mouth. I know what you're thinking. It's not on your face, which is sadly void of any expression. But your thoughts come to me in the mind, emerging like the odor from a fetid pond. There seemed no useful response. He turned to go to his room to read. Don't run off before I speak my mind, Granny said. He stopped. You started school yet? Uh, not yet. You smart enough to play Scrabble? He knew the game. Have you played it? A few times, he said. Then join us tomorrow night at 6.30, here in my quarters. She jiggled her joystick. And don't make noise. I don't like noise. She backed up her vehicle, shoved it into gear, and disappeared back into her bedroom. She hadn't given him enough time to decline the invitation. The next time he walked through the foyer... The doors to Granny's rooms were closed and had a bolt lock visible in the crack that indicated an ominous finality to their ever being opened again. Darwin showed up for Scrabble on time. Granny sat in a straight-back chair, her wheelchair parked haphazardly near the door to the bedroom. Mrs. Thomas was the other player. "'Sit there,' Granny said to Darwin, pointing although there was only one empty chair left. "'I keep the dictionary.' Granny patted a small pocketbook edition of Webster's that she had near her left hand. I'm good at this, she said. I don't want you going away crying. We're not going to play to let you win because you're a boy kid. Is that clear? Granny took five dollars from Bonita Thomas and added money of her own that she put under the dictionary. You play for free this time, she said to Darwin. You're our guest tonight. Winner takes all, she said 
with a knowing smile that she would win. She passed turned-down tiles in the box top to determine who starts. "'Show me a letter,' she said to Darwin. He turned up a B. Mrs. Thomas, an S. Granny, a Y. "'You start,' Granny said sharply to Darwin, her face creased with irritation that she'd come in last in the draw. The game progressed. Soon Darwin's score was twice Granny and Mrs. Thomas's combined. Granny's mind wandered as her loss became obvious. She was already thinking about the next game. "'Luther be home tomorrow?' she asked Mrs. Thomas. "'Not until late Monday,' Mrs. Thomas said. "'Can I see him then?' Darwin asked Mrs. Thomas. "'I haven't gotten any word about my allowance.' "'Maybe around eleven on Tuesday or Wednesday,' Mrs. Thomas said. "'But I think he's determined for you to make it on your own.' Darwin played Scrabble by road for a few minutes, concentrating on what he might say to Luther. Minutes later, Granny played Zany, Z-A-N-E-Y. There's no E, Mrs. Thomas said. This is not a seminar. You don't think it's right? Challenge, Granny said. But you challenge wrong, and you lose a turn. I know the rules, Mrs. Thomas retorted. She challenged. You don't need to look it up, Darwin said. No E. Granny looked it up in her dictionary anyway, and silently removed her tiles. I don't think this Sweeney pale girl's attractive at all, Granny said, as Darwin played. So skinny, no flesh on her at all, and always flashy. She could be a natural beauty uh, if she allowed it, Mrs. Thomas said. All that makeup, uh, the hair treatments. She's desperate for a man, I can see it. From the tabloid, you'd think she and Luther were married. She's sullen around me, doesn't say a word, Granny said. She's shy, Aretha. She can't be shy. She sings in concert for 30,000 people. That's different. And Luther, with all those girls up there in his rooms, even when she's around sometimes, I think it's disgraceful. Granny added a D to a B and an E. Darwin played. I think she's a good girl, Mrs. Thomas said. She looks innocent enough. She exchanged tiles. She's too rich to be so young, Granny said. A few hit records can turn your life around mighty early. It's not a blessing, Mrs. Thomas said. Your turn, Granny, Darwin said impatiently. I'm thinking, Granny frowned and looked at her tiles. Then she looked up again. She'd do better to grab you, boy. You're about the same age, and you're a lot better looking than Luther. Darwin glanced away. She's a celebrity, he said, aware he was responding with a touch of uncontrolled awe for Sweeney, whom he had never met or seen in person, but every teenager knew, and half the world, through her music. Don't make her any different than the rest of us, Granny said. Look at Luther. He's a celebrity, and he's worse than us, barely human. He's your grandson, Aretha, Mrs. Thomas said. And sometimes I'm not proud of it, Granny said. He's taken you in, Mrs. Thomas said. He makes me pay my own way. Well, he deserves some respect. That's family business, Bonita. Best you don't comment. Mrs. Thomas closed her eyes for a second at the rebuke. Please play, Granny, Darwin said again. Granny laid down two tiles. She scored only three points, but it made no difference. 
The game was already lost. Granny and Mrs. Thomas anteed up for the next game, and they played on. Darwin won all six of the games. "'Thank God I'm a little up on you,' Granny said to Mrs. Thomas, and took the money from under the dictionary. "'The boy is the winner,' Mrs. Thomas said. "'The money is his. That's what you said. Winner takes all.' "'Don't be ridiculous. He didn't expect to take the winnings, did you, boy?' Darwin didn't speak or move. "'It's not right,' Aretha, Bonita said. "'He won.' "'It's really none of your business, Bonita.' I beg to differ. I put my money on the table expecting the rules to be followed. Darwin waited. With each game, the total pot ante had increased to more than three times his savings. I made it clear he was playing for free. You said, winner take all, Mrs. Thomas said again. Just the players who put in money. That's the way it's always been done. We've never had a situation like this before, Mrs. Thomas said. Well, it's the policy. And Granny stuffed the winnings into the slit in her blouse. I won't play if it's not fair, Mrs. Thomas said. If he plays again, he'll up five dollars around like the rest of us. I'd like to play again, Darwin said, pleasantly aware of the potential for income. It's settled then, Granny said, clearing the table, and walking to her bedroom without the slightest sign of a disability that might need a wheelchair. Chapter 3 On Tuesday, Darwin stopped a few feet inside the door of Mrs. Thomas's office and stared at Luther, who looked more chronically angry in person than he did on TV. Luther's sprawling 6-3 frame dwarfed the armless wooden straight-backed chair. Mrs. Thomas sat behind her desk, a tenuous smile on her face. Luther unfolded to stand and loom over Darwin. "'Well, you've grown, cuz,' he said." pulling Darwin up by the shoulders. He took Darwin in a bear hug and lifted him six inches off the ground. Darwin was so surprised he couldn't respond. Luther abruptly let him go and stepped back. "'Hey, you play ball?' Luther asked, eyeing Darwin in a brief glance from head to toe. "'Tennis,' Darwin said. "'But you know football?' Darwin nodded yes. "'You're tall enough for a wide receiver,' Luther said, pausing for a few seconds. But put on some weight, though. Sit down, Mrs. Thomas said to Darwin, but meaning both of them. He's got something to ask you, she said to Luther as she looked to Darwin. I need my allowance, Darwin said. A tense silence descended. Whoa, Luther said. What's this allowance? Aunt gave me my allowance every week. Luther frowned. My parents left her in charge of money for me, Darwin said. It came from his inheritance, Mrs. Thomas said. It was in the wills, the support. Luther's breath intake came quick and loud. You don't have to tell me things I already know, he said. He paused again. But you'll give it to me, Darwin asked. I'm not giving you anything. That's not the way to bring up children. But it's mine. You're my responsibility. You gotta earn it. And that includes room and board. The inheritance covers that, Mrs. Thomas said. I got rights, don't I? Luther said curtly. I'm the guardian, for Christ's sake. I'll bring up the kid the way I see it. Make him a man. 
You're appointed to manage his parents' money for him until he is of age, Mrs. Thomas said. You can't make him live in a utility room with a bare light bulb dangling from a twisted electrical wire attached to the ceiling from a single power outlet and only enough room for a cot. We've got plenty of unused bedrooms with baths in various parts of the house. We've got an empty townhouse unit. I came up from nothing. No one gave me anything. That's no reason to make him suffer. He's not suffering, Luther said without looking at Darwin. But he's going to work for his keep. In the silence, Darwin felt Mrs. Thomas's stare. Luther grinned at him. What do you want him to do, Mrs. Thomas said to Luther. I don't know yet, Luther said. I'll keep thinking on it. What about school, Darwin asked. There must be some school close, Luther said. He needs a private school, Mrs. Thomas said. The executors expect it. Darwin looked to her to express gratitude for at least trying what she believed was impossible. It was the first glint of kindness in Mrs. Thomas, who seemed carved from stone. Public school is good enough, Luther said, and it's free, he thought for a second, unless you count taxes. But private school is paid for, Darwin said loudly. He stood up. Get him in a public school, Bonita. Then you can try for a private school when he proves himself. I want to go to a good college, Darwin said. I need the best school I can get into for medical school. You keep complaining, I'll put you to work cleaning out stadium toilets, Luther said. You can't cheat me of what my parents left me. Don't talk back to me, Luther said. Give me what's mine. Luther leaned forward and put his elbows on his knees. Look, kid... Money laying around at your age is not healthy. You got to work. Earning is where you learn about life. He paused, leaning back with a relaxed, sarcastic smile. Then he turned serious. But you're right. We'll see about a good school. But it will take months for Bonita to try to get you in. This is a snotty place to live. You need kin to die in the revolution or be blood-related to Thomas Jefferson. And by allowance, Darwin said, that has always been mine. I told you, only if you earn it. That's not what my aunt did. It's the way I do it. So where do I earn my allowance? You can figure it out. You're the smart one. Darwin breathed deeply. What is there to do? You deaf... I told you. I'll think on it. That's all, Mrs. Thomas said. Luther's mood was obviously anti-good judgment. She didn't want Luther making bad decisions he wouldn't reverse. She took checks from a drawer for Luther to sign and placed them in front of him next to a felt-tip pen. Luther didn't look up as Darwin closed the door. Outside, Darwin knew defeat. He had no allowance. Luther didn't seem to like him and surely wasn't to be a benevolent guardian. And the public school seemed his only education for a time, and he'd probably have no possibility of getting into a good college. Chapter 4 Sweeney Pale, Luther's celebrity girlfriend, still lived at home with her parents in Jersey, 
but frequently came to Luther's compound to swim and hang out when she was in town. Darwin had met her three times, but only to say hello. Granny knew all the details about Sweeney. Sweeney loved Luther beyond reason. Almost two years ago, her manager had arranged with Luther's manager to have Luther escort her to the Country Music Awards as beneficial to both their careers. They were an instant celebrity couple. After many months and repeated public appearances together, although no ring had ever been detected, it was roundly believed by the press they were engaged. Neither of their managers advised confirming or denying, which seemed to hold them on the gossip page indefinitely and fueled thousands of pictures by paparazzi. Darwin was surprised when Sweeney sought him out for a favor. He was working out in the basement gym next to the rec rooms when Sweeney opened the door at the top of the stairs and descended to walk straight toward him. Luther's not here, she said as she approached the elliptical, and I've got something to give him. He dismounted. She was much shorter, and he smiled down on her. I'll give it to Mrs. Thomas, he said. She couldn't hide her annoyance. Could you give it to him? It's personal. I never know when I'll see him. You can put it in a plastic bag and leave it at the front gate. The guard handles personal stuff, and it's his job to get things to Luther. I'm not just a fan, she said. Maybe she didn't think so, but that was how Luther seemed to treat her. Please, she said. Do it for me. Tomorrow, Darwin had to wake Luther just before Luther had to leave. Eugene, the bodyguard, would have the limo waiting. It was another one of Luther's random, spontaneous, unnecessary demands to justify Darwin's allowance, still not being paid. Luther told him he would learn him good about how to make money, and Luther began to tip Darwin each time for valet services. Tomorrow, Darwin had special instructions to be sure Luther's stuff was in the limo and a cup of coffee placed in his hand. Darwin would shake Luther's shoulder to wake him up. Luther would put on yesterday's jeans, probably keep wearing the T-shirt he slept in, grab the cup of coffee, and be in the limo in two and a half minutes. Sure, he said to Sweeney. Sweeney reached for her shoulder bag. Look, she said, holding out and opening a folder with a photo of her and Luther holding hands and posing on the red carpet. She turned over the photo, and there were handwritten verses on the back. It's a good picture, Darwin said. Not the picture. On the back. The words to my new release. It's coming out Friday. That's great, Sweeney. She leaned forward a little to be confidential. Luther inspired them. Really? I want him to know. She was anxious with hope. Okay, it's really a nice gift, Darwin said. You'll do it? Tomorrow? He smiled. Sure. Do you really think he'll like it? She asked. I mean, you don't think it's silly, do you? It's a very nice present, Sweeney. She lowered her eyes, embarrassed by his words. And tell me what he thinks. It will be all right. He'll love it. She stepped up on the treadmill with one foot and kissed him on the cheek. He backed away, surprised. She left quickly. She was a strange girl. Her fans treated her like an accomplished celeb they loved and thought her ready for a family, incessantly looking in the tabloids for a hint of a telltale bump distorting her costumes. Luther never seemed to appreciate that Sweeney had any value. 
It was probably ignoring her that made her so insecure, and she tweeted around Luther like a prepubescent girl sometimes. She was almost always alone at the house, and alone almost anywhere in public. Her fame seemed to isolate her, like a butterfly larva in a cocoon. Oddly, Luther failed to be her guide out of the wilderness celebrity status created, and Darwin, as he got to know about Sweeney, began to feel sorry for her. She was perpetually lonely and seemed doomed for inevitable hurt. The next morning, Darwin entered Luther's suite of rooms without knocking and went to the bedroom. Luther was in his jockey shorts in a fetal position. The covers were wadded on the floor. Darwin shook Luther's shoulder. Luther jerked awake, opening his eyes, then squeezing them shut. Darwin waited until he sat up and handed him a cup of coffee. Eugene's ready, Darwin said. I put your bag in the limo. Darwin stood back and waited as Luther slowly got out of bed and groped for his jeans, which he slept on. He got a clean T-shirt from a dresser drawer and stumbled to the bathroom as he slipped it over his head. He brushed his teeth. He walked back into the room and slipped his feet without socks into a pair of laceless sneakers. Let's go, he said. Here's a gift from Sweeney. She brought it yesterday. Darwin handed it to Luther, who threw it on the bed. The photo slipped out half-exposed. It's a photo of you. Luther slapped him lightly on the arm with the back of his hand. Leave it, uh, he said. It's got the words to her new song on the back. Luther was out of the bedroom door into the living area. Darwin took the folder with the photo with him and followed. I'm not going to look at it now, Luther said, so leave it here. You'll forget. I won't. It meant a lot to her for you to see it, Darwin said, holding the folder up. They were close to the elevator that went to the garage. Okay, Luther said, and he took the folder on the way down but didn't open it. The doors opened. Eugene was in uniform. Luther handed him the photo folder without a look. Hey, give this to Mrs. Thomas to hold for me when you get back. Yes, sir, Eugene said. The folder would go into fan mail. The chances of Luther ever reading Sweeney's lyrics were zero. And tip the kid, Luther said to Eugene. Tell her you liked her song, Darwin said. Hey, stop giving me advice, Luther said. Eugene opened the rear door of the limo for Luther and then handed Darwin ten dollars. Two days later, early in the morning, Sweeney arrived for her morning at the mansion before she went to rehearsal. Darwin worked with Eugene, the bodyguard and chauffeur, cleaning the Mercedes when Sweeney waved to him from the drive. Did you give it to him? She called. Darwin gave her a thumbs up. Did he read them? Darwin said nothing and was careful not to project a yes or no, or even an I don't know. Sweeney was closer to him now. Did he say anything? She asked. There was a smile all over his face, Darwin said. Thanks, Darwin. I owe you. Chapter 5 Laszlo Forgash was head of security for Luther, and he was skeptical about Darwin at first, whether Darwin would fit into the Pinelli compound. At Darwin's age, kids could be wild and out of control, and if Darwin screwed up, Luther would make security service responsible for covering and cleanup. But within a few days, Laszlo saw no trouble brewing from Darwin. 
He liked the kid. Darwin found things to do and wasn't lazy. He'd figured out ways to make cash. He was washing the limo daily for five bucks, and he didn't complain about Luther, who was the worst guardian any kid could have. And Laszlo admired the way all the women had taken to Darwin, without exception, each in their own way. On a Saturday morning, Laszlo made morning security rounds when a white four-door Camry with dual controls and Kelton's driving school, professionally painted on each of the front doors, picked Darwin up for a lesson. The kid was taking driving lessons to get his New York license. That was good. Maybe he'd expand car washes to the neighborhood with a pickup and delivery service. And he could run errands, too. When he had time the same afternoon, Laszlo went to find Darwin. You got some time this afternoon? I'll take you out in the Mercedes to work on parking. Later we could work on stick with one of Luther's sports cars. Laszlo's lessons continued for two weeks. Laszlo was proud of the kid's skills. He learned fast, and he was proud, too, that a few days after the start, the kid dropped his lessons with the training school. Hey, where'd you learn to drive? Darwin asked him one day when they'd gone up the coast to practice off-road. When I was a cop, Laszlo told him, the memories made him proud, but sad, too, at the sight of humanity he saw that few others did. I took programs required by the city and liked driving. Then I got my CDL in a training school in Florida, mostly for big rigs, and took some stunt driving in L.A. when I was patrolling before I did homicide. When I quit the force, I got my chauffeur's license the same week I got my P.I. The kid stared at him with admiration mixed with awe. I can teach you some good handling in a stick shift. 180-degree turns going forward and back, skid correction, backing. It's like riding a bicycle. You'll never forget. Laszlo had considered about using the kid as a backup chauffeur. The kid had a thoughtful look. I'd like that, he said. And I could teach you some cop self-defense skills, Laszlo said. Laszlo used the ground maintenance jeep on a slick surface for a start to learn the feel of driving on the edge of a vehicle's capabilities, and then used his car, a souped-up reinforced Pontiac, to learn 180-degree turns on a dry road and dirt surface, traveling up to 50 miles per hour going forward, but learning at slower speeds going backward. You're good, kid, he said. He could see Darwin was pleased. Chapter 6 Darwin had not heard from Dr. Adrian Malvern since their meeting on the plane from Pittsburgh until Malvern called with an invitation for a Saturday night barbecue with his family. Any chance you could get four tickets for the next game? Dr. Malvern asked. Darwin hesitated, wanting to help. I've um, never... I thought Luther had tickets reserved for his own use. All the pros do. I'll ask, said Darwin more meekly than he had wanted. Great. Five o'clock Saturday. Should we pick you up? Darwin asked where they lived. Thanks, I can walk, he said. After he hung up, Darwin went from the house to Mrs. Thomas's office. She was at the door talking to Colette, the maid, who left as he approached. Mrs. Thomas stared at him blankly. I was wondering if there was a way I could get tickets for the opener, Darwin asked. Well, it's pretty far away. Call tickets for all. Everyone knows it's sold out. Well, we have none. Luther sells what he's allotted at a premium to the highest bidder, and he waits to just before the game. Darwin turned to go. 
What do you need them for? Mrs. Thomas asked. Dr. Malvern invited me to dinner. He lives near here. And you have to bring tickets? Well, he didn't say that exactly. I see, she said. It wasn't a condition or anything. She nodded thoughtfully, went inside, and closed the door. Chapter 7 On the day Darwin was invited to dinner, Helen Malvern came in from playing tennis, undressed, and pushed her all-white tennis clothes down the laundry chute before stepping into her private steam shower. She had to dress for dinner. Thank God at least it was casual. Father had met a boy on an airplane who was living with a famous quarterback. Why invite him to dinner, her mother complained. Helen's identical thoughts. He wants to go to medical school, her father said. So do thousands of others, her mother retorted, the tone of her voice implying father would probably invite them too. I think he may have something special, her father said. But Helen believed her father was partly attracted because this boy's guardian was a famous quarterback. Her father loved sports and professional football most of all, and it was obvious for years, although she never doubted her father's love for her, he had always wanted a boy to do men things. And this unspoken obsession had gotten worse over the years as he realized neither she nor her sister Coral would ever be interested in sports or the medical profession in any way. Do not risk selling her reputation. Her mother had resigned herself to social excellence for this boy and spent the afternoon in a flurry of preparation. Part of her mother's energy was generated when she had condescended to entertain a social non-entity by the possibility of romance. Helen and her sister Coral were about the same age as this boy, and her mother had this obsession with immersion of her two girls and the romance her mother dreamed of but never conquered. Helen believed, for the most part, her parents' marriage on the social face presented pretty well. But inside, deep down, there didn't seem to be a smidgen of romance. Oh, there was affection at times, and often mutual respect, and an almost unfailing tolerance. But Helen never saw what she thought was her mother's dream of passion. Definitely not the passion Helen imagined from reading literature and seeing movies. She still saw her mother struggling for recognition for her looks and talents in midlife. What she would say, what she yearned for, was admiration for a job well done. Her mother wanted to be loved, wanted to be violated in a laboratory of a transoceanic jet, whisked away to a sun-drenched, sand-infested island to be adored and ravished. Helen was sure her father never had that sort of romance in him. Her mother was chained to misery by marrying for convenience and panicked that another chance might not present to her. Well, Helen was not going to let her mother push her into any marriage. She'd marry only for love, whatever that meant, which he believed was the only way to create an idyllic family while growing as an individual unshackled by family responsibilities. And Helen would not marry for love if it meant hand-washing laundry and a meager existence. Helen could only love in her own class. She was sure of that. Her mother was in real estate, always on call, and when she entertained at home, she insisted Dr. Malvern cook on the grill and her two daughters set table and serve. Tonight would be dreadful. The inevitable embarrassment of her mother swamping this boy with her trivia about her daughters. Her mother was nervous around youth 
and her thoughts got jumbled and she babbled with silly pronouncements. All useless to Helen and Coral, with a boy new to the neighborhood, living ostentatiously in poor taste in a cluster of distinguished, elegant homes, and rumored to be going to public school. And from Pittsburgh, my God, it couldn't be good. Coral would slip away early, of course, probably before store-bought cake and ice cream were served, which her mother thought suitable enough for young people. Coral spent evenings looking for guys in town with the sons of summer residents and renters on the beach clustered up to the bar at local taverns like suckling pigs to a sow. It was shameful, really. In summer, Coral was a femme fatale in a barnyard of creatures in heat. Helen stepped out of the shower and went into the bedroom to finish drying. A knock sounded from the door. Half an hour, honey, her mother said. Helen threw her towel on the spread of the 18th-century Connecticut Tista bed and went to her walk-in closet to look for slacks and a blouse. She didn't hurry. Unwilling to rush her father's search for a surrogate son on whom he hoped to bestow his practice or satisfy her mother's eternal yearnings for a romantically coated son-in-law she could vicariously enjoy with imagined passion. Helen Malvern could not hide her disbelief. She was appalled. The boy's name was Darwin Hastings. She'd never heard anyone named Darwin, except the origin of species guy, and that was his surname. She thought of photos in National Geographic of dim-witted motionless lizards and treeless islands in the Galapagos. Darwin. It had a sort of ridiculous, slithering feel to the lips when you spoke it. Her mother repeated it four times before he arrived to be sure she remembered. Mother was nurtured on creationism. Evolution she did not try to comprehend is too radical for consideration. Carl wasn't back from her date, her mother noted. And wouldn't Helen take some responsibility to be ready to greet this boy? You'll need your best foot forward, she said. Don't be negative. Be nice. But her mother meant that Cora was the more effervescent and engaging of her two daughters, and that she, Helen, would have to put forth special effort. And clearly unstated but implied was her mother's true message. When it comes to boys, you positively suck. Well, the idea that you hooked boys with tits and ass was offensive, and frankly, low class, and her mother, no matter how expensive her clothes and how often she went to the hairdressers, couldn't hide working-class origins and community college schooling. Darwin was more masculine than his neuter-sounding name and more mature than 17. He had a rugged yet cultured look to him. He had dressed in slacks, loafers that looked new, and a buttoned-down long-sleeved light blue shirt. Appropriate and attractive, she thought, slightly impressed that he wasn't wearing a tee, jeans, and flip-flops. Mother shepherded them into the drawing room with a view of the ocean and left for the kitchen. Father offered the boy beer, but he preferred a diet soft drink, and father worked at the back of the room at the wet bar. Helen was alone with the boy, facing him, but angled also to the view over the water that was spectacular with the late afternoon sun in a cloudless sky. Helen, the boy said, as if reestablishing which of the two sisters she really was, I've heard so much about you. Probably untrue, wrote, and a cliché, but still nice to say. He seemed confident, undaunted by the size of the house or the prominence of her family wealth and status. Her father returned with drinks for all on a tray. 
Father said you were a good student, she said to Darwin. The best, her father said. Tell her what your grades were in Pittsburgh, he said to Darwin. Pretty good, Darwin said. Straight A's, her father said. He wants to be a doctor. Ellen smiled. I can't imagine why. What does that mean, her father said. It's not the best of professions. Don't be mean, Helen, her father said. What's better? Your life is all work, she said to her father. But it's satisfying, her father said. My father was an internist, Darwin said. My mother a researcher in basic science. Are they here, Helen asked. Uh, you're from Cincinnati, aren't you? Darwin shook his head no. From Pittsburgh. They died years ago. Helen was eager to establish her point and her control of the conversation. Doctors work mainly on a one-to-one -one personal level, don't you think? Uh, don't you ever want to improve all of humanity, she said, like a vaccine or an indestructible artificial heart? She wasn't sure why she was challenging this boy. He was smarter and more accomplished than she would have thought if she had taken the time to think about it. But she wanted to demean him a little, in all honesty. She thought he should show her more humility and more awe at the Malvern's family collections and accomplishments. That was it. He refused to be the least bit overwhelmed by her or the social setting, even though obviously out of his realm. Not many from the Midwest had penetrated the Malvern top levels of Hampton society. Shape up, she thought. She did deserve more respect than he was showing. Well, that was her problem, wasn't it? What difference did it really make what this boy thought? He was unworthy of her attention. She'd just let him converse, and she'd think about other things for a while. After all, she would never have an interest in him. I guess, Darwin said. Dr. Malvern glared at Helen. Don't be cantankerous, Helen. I would agree that creating a new, more efficient computer code to monitor a treatment can make a difference for society, but the impact on people's lives is tangential and variable and not easy to define. At least helping one person at a time to a longer life without pain and suffering is a measurable way to make a difference, step by step. Helen didn't respond. Her father's argument had value, but she still felt defensive about her opinions. My father cared about patients, Darwin said, whether they hurt after treatment, being sure the test results were explained to them as soon as possible so they wouldn't worry. That is different than creating an artificial organ that extends life, but you have no way to know how the patient feels or thinks or whether it really does extend life. It's what you value as your contribution to patients, to others. Well, that was a lot more erudite than she had expected. The best medicine changes people's lives significantly, and usually for the better, her father said. He was on a roll now, close to pontificating. And in the communal sense, every individual health advance, cure, or therapy raises the longevity and quality of the life of the population and contributes to how to do better next time. Ponderous, pompous thinking, she thought, and mostly male, too. Doctors could be so irritating at times. But the caregiver is at personal risk sometimes, she said reflexively, carrying on. Why choose a profession that might kill you? You can't do much in a lifetime if you die from a contagious disease. You get pricked with a needle, turn HIV positive, 
You don't have the same potential to make an impact at any level as staying healthy and developing a super antibiotic or a foolproof vaccine. She still didn't care about this issue in the least. But she again had risen to enjoy the confrontation with her father, and this boy too, and to put this boy in his proper place. Less risk now to caregivers than a hundred years ago, Darwin said. Definitely, her father said. So what, she thought. You die, you die. The dead don't calculate risk. Her mother returned with potato chips and dip, cucumber slices with soft cheddar cheese on top, and some bacon-wrapped hot chicken sausages, each speared with a wooden toothpick and microwaved. She passed two plates of food and said to Darwin, Helen plays tennis well. Do you play? Yes, Darwin said. We won state last year, Helen said. Do you play singles? Darwin asked. Number one singles. Are you thinking of making tennis your profession? Darwin asked. Was that sarcastic? Obviously he must know she had more to her than a tennis player. She smiled. Never. You don't like athletes? I don't want to compete at that level, she lied. You sound more than capable. I don't like many of the professionals. They've been here in the summer for the club tournaments. Weird human beings, mostly uneducated. I think fame warps their personalities. Uh, Darwin lives with his cousin, her father said. Luther Pinelli, the famous quarterback. Everyone knows Pinelli, she said. But she didn't like football or the players either. And she resented fame and fortune bestowed on an oversized idiot. What is Luther like, her father said to Darwin. I haven't been here long enough to know, Darwin said, and I only saw him twice before I arrived. He did not get along well with my side of the family. I was too young to know why. It must be generous of him to take you on, Helen said. Darwin smiled. My parents' estate supports me, he said. Well, that was interesting. And Luther treats you well, she said. So far. But the boy seemed hesitant in his response. After a few minutes, her mother urged her father to start the barbecue outside on the patio. Mother went to the kitchen to start the corn and check the potatoes. You two stay here and finish your drinks, her mother said. When they were alone, Helen leaned over to Darwin and spoke softly. She'd come away from the conversation with her father and the boy with a sort of comradeship for the boy. He wasn't afraid to speak his ideas. Sorry for Mother if she seems a little awkward, she said. She doesn't spend much time around young people. Do you miss your parents? I was eleven when they were killed, but I always remember them as happy. In fact, I always remember them together, never alone. Her mother came back in. Why don't you join the doctor on the patio, her mother said to Darwin. I need Helen to help me for a few minutes. Helen went with her mother into the kitchen. They were alone. It was clear her mother heard the conversation. Why must you argue with everyone, her mother said. Is there something you want me to do, Helen said. I think he's cute enough. You could invite him to Katie's birthday party at the club next Sunday. You need an escort. Coral's going with Jack. I don't like Katie. I'm not going. But you have to. Penelope's child... And if you had a friend, I have other things to do, mother. She hated her mother's unscrupulous meddling and left before her mother could say more. 
Helen walked outside to the brick-walled enclosure open on the front that housed two grills side by side, both fired up. The men were standing nearby. Father had put on his full-length years-of-use apron with a barely recognizable stamped color profile of James Beer on the chest part. Their conversation stopped as Helen walked up. Everything coming along in the kitchen, her father said. I don't know, Helen said, her mood soured by her mother. Tell him how you like Exeter, her father said. It's the best education this side of the city, Helen said with reflexive pride. Ninety-eight percent of graduates go to college, her father added. Are you going to Exeter? Helen asked Darwin. She knew he wasn't. I was told I couldn't get in, Darwin said. You don't want to go to public school, she said. Really, Exeter is the only place to get a solid education. She liked the idea of making him feel bad about not being good enough for Exeter, but he didn't seem to mind her comment at all. Darwin says Luther's house manager believes Luther has no social clout, her father said. That Exeter advised her there were no positions available and an application would be useless. That's probably true, Helen said. Would you like to go to Exeter, Darwin, her father said. Yes, sir, I think I would. I'll make it happen, her father said. He looked up. Here's Coral. How irritating. Her father supporting this Midwestern hayseed. Of course he was trying to nurture new blood for his practice. That's how doctors got good associates these days. But why choose someone totally without connections? There must be smart students from good families worthy of the trouble. Coral came out of the kitchen and broke into a run. Her above-the-knee skirt flapping her golden hair picked up by the wind and waving in light strands that gave her an exuberant look. She ran up and hugged Father, turned, and took the new boy's hand. And you're Darwin, she gushed, her eyes fixed on his face and sparkling with excitement, the way only she could conjure up, even when Helen knew she was half-conscious from the pain of her often severe menstrual cramps. Darwin's look said he was impressed. Helen could see that. Coral had that effect on men— but Coral's style lacked class, flashy, really, with a hue of vulgarity, never elegant. She'd come to see Coral's unending come-on with men as disgracefully distasteful. Well, of course she was jealous of Coral at times. She admitted that. But at the moment, she didn't seem jealous. This Midwestern boy wasn't worth it. "'You're so much better looking than I imagined,' Coral said to the boy, and Helen inwardly cringed. We're going to get him into Exeter, her father said. I'm so glad, Coral said sincerely, and with an irritating touch of anticipation of something interesting to happen as she dropped Darwin's hand, giving him a hug and a kiss on the cheek, standing on tiptoes and barely reaching his lower jaw. Her mother came out carrying a tray of steaming stacked corn. Come, sit at the table, her mother said. As they began to move, Coral shimmied to the side of the boy. I'm going to the cellar tonight. Live music. Would you like to come along? Uh, not tonight, Darwin said, but thanks. I have a car. I could take you home. No thanks, he said. Helen found him a little more interesting for seeing Coral for the hussy she was. But after dinner, Coral insisted she drive Darwin home, and the fool consented. Chapter 8 
Darwin was alone in the rec room practicing pool shots while watching an instruction video on how to play pro pool. He pressed the remote to rerun a section and then tried a shot a few more times. He was improving. Colette the maid called down from the top of the back stairs. Miss Pale is here, she said with a tone of distaste. She closed the door. Why tell him? He went back to practicing. But just after he racked and broke to clear the table, Sweeney opened the door and descended the stairs. Darwin paused before a shot to run his hand through his disheveled hair. Where's Luther? she asked, stopping at the end of the table, the pale light swath from the green teepee-shaped lampshade falling on her so her face was in shadow, but illuminated the tight jean skirt and red blouse she wore unbuttoned at the top far enough to show the curve of her breast. Darwin's eyes lingered for an instant. I haven't seen him. Laszlo says he dropped him off downtown, and a friend was going to bring him back. Call him, Darwin suggested. I can't find my phone. She threw her shoulder bag on the table, disturbing the lay of three balls. She turned her ankle on her four-inch heels, and she leaned against the table as she crossed her leg on her other knee and massaged the pain. I'll try, Darwin said. Darwin racked his cue and called Luther on his phone. No answer. He left a message saying Sweeney was at the house. He never answers when I call, Sweeney said. He doesn't carry the phone half the time, Darwin said. Luther was to meet me here. He's got courtside tickets for the Knicks. Maybe he's at the game. I'll call people who sit close to him, see if he's arrived. Darwin went to his room to look at his notebook. He called two people. Neither answered and he left messages. Sweeney had come up to the main floor when he came out of his room. I'll watch the game in the rec room, Sweeney said. Sweeney didn't like basketball. She watched the game to see the celebrities scanned by the cameras. That was why she'd badgered Luther to take her to the game. He had the best seats for exposure, where you might be seen even during foul shots and the commercial free timeouts. You want to watch the game? Sweeney asked Darwin. Darwin hesitated. I think I'll shoot pool, Sweeney. You can do that while I watch, then. Sweeney went to the basement kitchen just off the pool room to help herself to a soda from the supply in the designated guest refrigerator. Darwin was practicing pool again when Sweeney turned on the TV and sat on the two-seater overstuffed sofa in a separate area from the pool table, but close enough to talk to Darwin with the volume turned down. She watched the first half in silence, sipping her soda from the bottle. No celebrity shots. During the half, she went upstairs to get snacks. The second half started. Celebrities were scanned. She was careful to concentrate, too, because Luther was often singled out as a great fan with a full screen above the shoulder image. She did not see Luther. In the middle of the second half, the game was close, and there were no lulls for celebrity shots. She walked to the pool table and pensively watched Darwin practice. Is he out with other girls? she asked. Darwin finished another shot, sinking the eight ball. Don't ask me questions like that, Sweeney. I don't know. If not with girls, it was poker, Darwin thought. She was quiet for a minute or more. Darwin was suddenly more aware of her.
enough that his concentration shifted and he was missing shots that he knew he should make. It was an opportunity, really. If he were to play in competition or for money, he'd have to play through distractions like Sweeney staring at him and asking questions she knew the answers to but didn't want to accept. I know he runs around. It's part of our agreement to never be tied down. Darwin played on. Does that seem odd to you, Darwin? Darwin chose a difficult shot and missed miserably, not even close. Maybe you think it's immoral. On my part, I mean, maybe his too. Do you think he's immoral, Darwin? Darwin lined up the shot. Do you? The cue hit the ball pretty square, but the line was off enough to keep the ball out of the pocket. I've only had sex with him twice, she said, and once it wasn't even all the way. So it's not like I'm a loose woman or anything. Darwin moved to the other side of the table, so his back was almost to her, and he could lessen the feel of her stare on his face. I love him, Darwin. It didn't start out that way, but I want to be with him. Darwin lined up the six ball. She sniffled. Suddenly he felt the need to comfort her. But that couldn't go well, and he resisted speaking and played on. I'm not a fool, am I? she said. Is that what you think? I'm a stupid little girl? Darwin straightened and looked at her. I think you're rich and successful. You've worked hard to achieve a lot. Smart? No one could do what you've done and not be smart. Pretty? He thought there were times when she was striking, especially made up and dressed in videos and in concert posters, at least in the photos he'd seen. But at other times, without the glamour, she looked like an innocent schoolgirl, as if unaware of her natural beauty. Stunning, he said. He leaned on his pool cue. She didn't move for some time, her eyes closed, her hands clasped tightly, her breathing almost imperceptible. Could you get someone to take me home? She said. Sure, Sweeney. He laid the cue on the table. Come upstairs and wait. I'll call. It'll only take a minute. Upstairs, Sweeney sat on a bench away from the door where Granny might see her and come out. Granny lost her civility when Sweeney was around. Laszlo said he was exhausted and covering for the night rear entrance guard who didn't show. Eugene, the bodyguard chauffeur, was in the city with a pickup truck buying wines to stock the wine cellar and booze for the bars. Call her a taxi, Laszlo said. I worry about her alone in a taxi, Darwin said. Well, take her home in the Mercedes then, Laszlo said. You drive better than most. Darwin smiled to himself. He told Sweeney to get ready. He backed up the Mercedes that he enjoyed driving more than the limo and almost as much as Luther's sports cars but not as much as Laszlo's pampered Pontiac that was ecstasy to handle. The night sky had scattered clouds and a half moon, and with the glow from the dashboard, Sweeney's skin had the hue of gray rock. She could not relax, and sat rigid and silent for many minutes as Darwin maneuvered the Mercedes on two-lane country roads toward the city. Darwin stopped for gas at a country store. He bought Sweeney a candy bar, a Mars bar he'd seen her eating on other occasions. He asked her parents' address and entered it in the GPS system. 
They were back on the road for many minutes when Sweeney took her first initiative to talk. Where are your parents? She asked Darwin, not looking at him. They were killed in a car accident when I was young. Sweeney's lips tensed with a nervous twitch. Do you miss them? Darwin braked at a four-way stop. A lot at first. It's gotten better over the years. He turned left. There was no traffic this time of night. What about your parents, he said. Your father's your manager, isn't he? He did finances, mostly. He managed bookings when I first started, but I have a professional now. My father was a crummy manager. What about your mother, Darwin asked. She fell apart about three years ago, she said. She's in and out of sanitariums and rehabilitation. Do you take care of her? Not really. We never got along, and now she barely communicates with me or anyone. They rode in silence until they were closer to the city. The audio guidance system gave more frequent directions. I'm still pissed at Luther, she said. He promised he'd meet me at the mansion tonight. Darwin stayed quiet. After a few moments, she said, Do you like me, Darwin? He paused. What's not to like? I mean, am I the kind of person you could, uh, if the circumstances were right, I mean, fall in love with? Words were not coming easy to Darwin. I've never been in love, I don't think, he said. I wouldn't know. You loved your parents. Yes, I mean, in love with a girl. This is important to me, Darwin. I don't think people like me for who I really am. They just like what I've become. They love the image. That's not love. He slowed to enter a new speed zone, always attentive to posted signs as Laszlo had insisted. That's why you work to create the image, isn't it? Darwin said. To be loved? I'm good at fame, she said. I work at it. But it's for my music. I want people to love my music. Darwin breathed deeply, but he kept it barely perceptible. I don't know, Sweeney. Being famous does make you different. I love Luther, she said. But he barely knows the true me. My family doesn't care. I don't have friends. It's miserable. I think Luther does love you, Darwin said, in his own way. Luther loves himself. No, I mean you. You're my friend. Do you think you could love someone like me? How can anyone know that? Love happens more discovered than anticipated, I think. I don't think anyone has ever really loved me, she said. In his side vision, he saw her slip her hand into her bra over her left breast, fixing something. When she removed her hand, she reached under the breast and elevated it with an uplifting motion three times. She was silent for maybe ten minutes. There's something about me, she said, some Gila monster quality about who I am. You're not seeing the truth, Darwin said. With fame, you must have thousands of friends, millions. I don't. Even before the fame, I had only one really good girlfriend who I could talk to. She enjoyed being with me. But after I got famous, she treated me differently, as if I weren't a friend anymore. You don't go to school, do you? That's where kids find friends. I was tutored for three years. 
No more. I graduated fast. Got a degree. You going to college? Some day. I looked at Brown. Princeton didn't want me. There's always NYU. I just want to wait until my travel is less. Darwin checked the distance to destination. I wish I knew how to be likable, Sweeney continued. I mean like a person, not like a singer. Darwin concentrated on the road ahead. I don't think people know how to act around celebrities, he finally said. Celebrities act like they're afraid to talk about the weather or if they like Dr. Pepper. People want to say the right things, but they don't have any confidence that they know what's right. You don't seem that way, she said. I did at first. It was weird to be around celebrities like you and Luther. It takes a while to get to know Luther, the real Luther. I think that's why everyone's always asking me what I see in him. You're not like Luther at all, Darwin said. Luther would never have asked me out. It was our agents that got us together. And he doesn't have any real friends other than the football players. He has you. I'm his girlfriend, not like a friend. You're my friend, Darwin. Luther can't be like you. Don't take it like you're to blame, Darwin said. It's really true. Regular people don't know how to be friends with stars. Darwin concentrated on a series of unclear directions from the guidance system. New construction, he said. Laszlo needs to update this navigation disk. She was silent for a while. Laszlo taught you to drive? She finally asked. It was amazing. In ten sessions, he got me feeling the car as an extension of me. That was his goal. Capture every car's capabilities, he said. Then use them to the best of your abilities. He kept telling me over and over, cars are made to transport people. They're not made to make you feel superior or admired or to give you the thrill of tempting death. They're a utility like plumbing. Don't drive and think it makes you better than the next guy. It can kill you. He's weird. I like him. He's quiet all the time, like a zombie. When he says something, it's usually important. He was a cop. Sweeney thought for a moment. I don't trust cops. They're too unpredictable. He was a homicide detective when he retired. And now he protects Luther? I'm not impressed. He runs all of the security for Luther and the compound. He knows when you're there and when you leave. He worries about the safety of all of us. She stared straight ahead. It's not too far, she said. Darwin glanced at her. She was crying softly. He watched the road more intently than he needed to. She made no sound, just tears running down her face, smearing the makeup around her eyes, and she made no attempt to wipe them away. You okay? he finally asked. Sure, she said. He decided not to probe, but the silence bore down on him. Is it going home? he asked. She didn't answer. Can I help? She reached over and touched him. You're sweet, Darwin. You really are. He led her out in the driveway of a modest, middle-class suburban home in a gated community. She undid her seatbelt. She took his hand and squeezed, staring at him intently. And without a word, 
she slipped out of the seat and closed the door without looking at him again. Chapter 9 As months passed, Darwin became more involved in Luther's routines, but Luther still mostly paid him for services on an ad hoc basis with tips and repeatedly exuded pride in having Darwin as his cousin assistant. Luther admired Darwin's intelligence and work ethic and thought it reflected positively on his image and on them as a family. Laszlo now also used Darwin as a driver for Luther, guest and staff, and compensated Darwin periodically from the security services slush fund because Luther had turned down a salary or hourly compensation for Darwin. Darwin liked Laszlo, who had interest in reading, personal fitness, wood-carving animals and figures, and a dedication to the best accomplishment of everything he did, and he enjoyed most of the work Laszlo provided for him. Mrs. Thomas provided monthly distributions supported in part by Granny. Darwin was never told where the money came from exactly, but Mrs. Thomas didn't deny when he asked about Granny. He assumed it was a loan and kept records, so when he had access to his inheritance, he would repay Granny and Mrs. Thomas in full. After the Patriots game, Luther had his ankle wrapped from a sprain, but it was still tender and he didn't want to drive. Laszlo and Eugene were busy, and Darwin volunteered. He was eager and confident to continue to practice his Laszlo-taught driving skills. Luther, even though his mood was sour, didn't object. Darwin got in the driver's seat of the white sports car on trial from the dealer, the seat with a new leather smell. The polished walnut on the dashboard reflected a pinpoint of intense yellow from the sun that was above the horizon about an hour to sunset. Darwin started the engine, revved the motor in neutral. "'You like it?' Luther asked. "'A hundred and twenty-eight grand,' he groaned. "'But zero to sixty and three point four. Darwin drove through the city streets until he reached a three-story brick building covering half a city block. He maneuvered into a narrow alley to stop before a windowless steel door. He blew the horn. A muscled valet in a cut-off T-shirt and jeans circled the car to open the passenger door and give Luther a high five. Cool, dude, he said. Luther didn't hint that the car was on trial loan from a dealer. Darwin followed Luther into the gym. Even in reception, the air smelled of stale sweat and soaked workout clothes. A blonde girl, trim in red shorts and a white company logo T-shirt, was folding hand towels. She looked up and smiled at Luther. Hey, you knew, Luther said. Been here almost two years. Probably been here every time you come. You've been hiding, then. Pleased to know a rich man, she said. Underpaid. A hundred and seventy-five million ain't underpaid. That's what it was, wasn't it? Can't confirm or deny, little darling, Luther said with a smile. And it's for five years. She threw him a towel, hard, overhand, teasing him. And the endorsements? Luther caught the towel, and Darwin handed him his black gym bag with a picture of a gold football embossed on it. This here is Darwin, Luther said to the girl. He's my go-to man. He winked and leaned over to Darwin to whisper loud enough so the girl could hear. You take care of this little darling, my man. She deserves good looking after. Darwin looked away from her gaze. 
sorting out his embarrassment. The girl basked in attention, totally unaware Luther demeaned her as he did all women, and he would almost routinely give her a chance to demean herself, which she would probably do within 24 hours. Luther meeting her in a back hall before finding an empty room with a lock on the door or sending a car after her after she got off work to bring her someplace for a quick drink before he screwed her. But never at the house. He would never do that with this girl who had next to zero class. If she had class, he'd do her at the house, secretive so only the bodyguards knew, sometimes even when Sweeney was around. Luther limped for effect to a solid, unmarked single door behind the desk and disappeared. Uh, "'You can go to the waiting room,' the girl said to Darwin with irritation. Darwin shrugged. Luther had said he would not be long, ten minutes at the most. The girl worked for a minute or so, then looked up at Darwin. "'Get out,' she said sharply. "'You make me nervous.' There was no trace of the playfulness and enticement she'd shown to Luther. Darwin didn't move. He didn't want to be bossed by this irritating female. And even at a distance, he could see the waiting room with old pizza boxes and remnants of hamburgers, fries, and Chinese takeout. Damn it, he was fine waiting here, and he knew the reason she wanted him gone was not to dilute her effect on Luther when he came back. I mean it. Get out, she said, her eyes shifted. Darwin stayed where he was, with his eyes on her. The girl got up. Even at full height, only her head and shoulders were visible behind the half-circle of the plastic-coated reception counter. "'You brat,' she said. She went into the gym through the glass double doors. Luther came back to reception less than ten minutes, still carrying his black gym bag. Too short for a workout. Treatment for his ankle, maybe? But Luther acted secretive, and Darwin didn't ask. "'Hey, where's the snatch?' Luther said. Darwin gave him a sour look, uncomfortable with a word that he felt shouldn't be used for women, even this woman, and pointed to the gym. Luther hesitated, deciding whether to make some solid arrangement with the girl, but he shook his head and started for the door. He smiled. Ah, come on, he said to Darwin. Did you get on with her? Uh, not well, Darwin said. Without clothes, they're all about the same, my man. Even the bitches. And I bet she's better than most. The car was running with the door open. Luther told Darwin to slip the muscle guy a $10 bill. In 15 minutes, they were at another gym. Darwin parked in the multi-story garage lot. Watch my bag, Luther said. He would be a couple hours, and Darwin put on his headset to listen to music and took out a book to read. A biography of Lincoln, his mother's most revered president. After his ankle treatments, Luther, with Darwin driving, went to the first gym to pick up the counter gym girl. Luther had called her. Luther had Darwin put down the top on the convertible. The girl was in the back seat, squashed between a cooler and Luther's gym bag, her feet up because there was less than 12 inches of legroom. She wore a mauve T-shirt and dark green shorts, different than the uniform of the club's trainers and staff. Her mustard-yellow hair with dark roots was pulled back in a ponytail. She kept quiet with her eyes straight ahead. Luther pointed the way to a motel. "'I thought we were going to your place,' the girl said to Luther. "'Too far, darling.' Darwin studied her profile in the mirror as she looked at Luther. 
She was deciding whether to do this or not. I don't like a motel, she said. I ain't got time to run around town, Luther said. It can't be that far to your place. Darwin parked in the motel lot. It's up to you, Luther said. The girl glanced at Darwin, as if she had just remembered he was there. Okay, she said to Luther. She slumped in the seat with a petulant tilt to her head. She waited poised with her arm extended until Luther conceded to take her hand to help her out of the back seat. Then he just lifted her out over the closed door. Pay the owner, not the nerdy dude, Luther said to Darwin. Luther handed him cash. In the motel office, Darwin handed money to the owner. Then he waited in the car. Twenty minutes later, Luther returned, reached in his bag, and took out a money purse. He handed Darwin four $100 bills and three twenties. Ah, it's uh, sixty bucks for the cab, he explained. He sent Darwin back to the girl. Where's Luther? she asked, still lying on the bed under a sheet that covered her to just below her chin. Darwin handed her the money. She pushed it away. I'm not a whore. Darwin was surprised. Tell him I'm waiting, she said. Luther was not coming back. Darwin was sure. Take the money, he said, her face flushed. Tell him I'll do anything he wants. Darwin put back the money in his pocket and laid the three twenties on the bed. This is for cab fare, he said. She turned from false confident bravado to desperate. He's coming back, isn't he? Darwin gave her a blank stare. She sobbed. Darwin hesitated. He said he was coming back, she said. He hasn't done it. It makes you feel like shit. She pulled the sheet up and wrapped it around her, then threw her legs over the side of the bed. You think I'm attractive, don't you? she asked. She opened the sheet to expose her bruised and bleeding breasts. Darwin said nothing for a few seconds. He did that to you? She looked away. You don't like me, do you? she said. From this morning you hated me, you shit. She wasn't very pretty now. Her face scowled. Her nose dripped from crying. Her hair disheveled. Her shoulder skin splotched and scratched in places, some wounds still bleeding, and her fingernails glittering with a dragon design and a white line on each tip, the details and acrylic effects seemingly non-human at this moment. But you like girls, don't you? she said. Tell him I'm waiting. He's not coming back, Darwin said. Tell him it means a lot to me. Darwin walked to the car and opened the door. She wants you to come back, Darwin said. Luther stared at him for a few seconds. I hate bitches, Luther said. He got out shutting the door. Thirty minutes later, he returned. Take the money to her now. She didn't want it. Take it. The girl was lying face down on the bed, a loose sheet over her lower legs. Her bare arms were under the pillow that held her head. She was looking away from Darwin. Oh, please don't, she said. It's me, Darwin said. He took a few steps to the nightstand. There's the money. She looked at him. Her lower lip was swollen and bleeding. Her tongue bloated so her speech blurred. She'd expected Luther, not Darwin. Go away, she said. 
The right side of her face was bruised black and blue, and there was a scrape above her eye that left blood on the pillow. What happened? Darwin asked. Nothing. Nothing happened. Not one single thing happened. Darwin laid the money on the nightstand. She sat up on the edge of the bed, uncovered from the waist up. Darwin stared at the just-clotted scratches on her chest. She counted the money. Why did you come with us, Darwin asked. She stared at Darwin for some time, deciding whether he deserved an answer or not. Suddenly she wanted him to respect her. He's a famous man, she said wistfully. I thought he might like me. Does it hurt, Darwin asked. She didn't answer. What did he do? Darwin wondered if he should call 9-11. I slipped on a banana peel, she said angrily. I hit my head against the toilet, you stupid shit. Why? She put her face in her hands to hide her tears. He couldn't get it up. She looked up. She whimpered. I'm not that bad looking, am I? Her upturned face held hurt and confusion. She looked to the dresser mirror, wondering if there was permanent damage. She wasn't beautiful, but she wasn't ugly either. And her searching for barely existent admirable qualities touched Darwin. Her irritation and sharp tongue were thin veils for her need for love. You look just fine, he said. He leaned over to look closer at the cut above her eyebrow. She slapped him in fear. He jerked back, touching his cheek and looking at his hand for blood. She sobbed when she realized he was not threatening her. He saw the jumble of her emotions, and his anger diminished after a few seconds. You take care of yourself, he said, not touching the money on the nightstand. She fell back on the bed face up as he closed the door. In the car, seated on the passenger side, Luther was drinking whiskey straight from a bottle. Darwin shifted smoothly and soon had the car to a few miles above the speed limit. Luther laid his head back, his eyes closed, keeping the bottle out of sight between his ankles. Chapter 10 True to his word at their first meeting, Luther continued to find more ways to provide money-making opportunities for Darwin. Luther had become increasingly proud of his parenting skills. To him, Darwin seemed to be turning out all right. Liked, industrious, and smart. Really smart. Darwin did help wash Luther's cars for cash, but that would never suffice. So Darwin, when not at school, and occasionally in place of school, traveled with Luther, usually on weekends for football. When Luther thought about it, he paid Darwin always in cash by the day. Amounts varied, and not infrequently there was nothing. Darwin still couldn't depend on steady income. And Luther began to teach Darwin the world of poker, with the intensity of a devoted father teaching his son to duck hunt, taking Darwin to poker games as facilitator of many of the sessions Luther usually instigated. The players, all carefully selected and personally known to Luther, or intensely vetted, tipped Darwin generously as they got to know him. After a few out-of-town games, Luther began to demand Darwin be present at poker parties at the mansion, too. He trusted Darwin implicitly now, and whenever possible, he would dismiss the staff after standard cleaning and food preparation to allow Darwin alone to provide for the players. 
The stakes in these games were high, and Luther had to assure every player that no conversations could be overheard, no trust breached, and no secrecy would ever be violated. Chapter 11 After the season ended, Luther spent a few weeks at the mansion. Sweeney was on tour. Darwin was studying with one of his tutors at the dining room table preparing for his entrance exams when Luther grabbed Darwin and half-dragged him to the top of the stairway to the rec room. Hey, Sweeney's opening in Chicago. We're going to go see her. Make her feel good. Check with Harriet. Get my stuff ready. We'll be leaving in the morning. Arrive in time for the concert. Get cash, Luther said. Two nights at the Hilton. Book your room at the Palmer House. How much, Darwin asked. Fifty large, but establish credit up to a hundred. Harriet can take care of it, but tell her the exact amount to be sure. Luther went down the rec room stairs to look at himself on offense on a TV replay of a Cowboys game. Luther got off the Hilton, and Darwin checked in alone at the Palmer House. Half an hour later, Luther arrived. Hey, it's small, Luther said, looking round the suite. He handed Darwin a list of names. What time is the concert, Darwin asked. Eight, Luther said. He took out his wallet and handed two tickets to Darwin. It's only a few blocks away. We ought to get there a few minutes early, Darwin said, dreading Luther's habit of always being behind for everything. It's all right. We'll be there in plenty of time. Five guys, five hours. We'll finish before seven. Darwin took out stacks of chips and a cardboard cash box from his suitcase. The first player arrived, a good-lucky man in a gray suit almost as tall as Luther. Luther gave him a hug and offered him something from the minibar, which he refused. The next man arrived exactly ten minutes later, mid-height, T-shirt and jeans, and loafers without socks. The man took off his leather jacket. Three more men arrived, staggered over the next few minutes. Darwin sat at the mini kitchen counter on a stool and, using a calculator on an iPad, accepted cash and doled out chips that each player counted. Darwin made notes on a yellow-lined, letter-sized legal pad. The game started. There was no smoking, and Darwin left only once for seven minutes to get potato chips. He was too young to buy alcohol. Those few, mostly losers, who did drink would bring their own anyway. This night, only Luther sipped vodka from a refilled Coke can. At 6.30, Darwin changed to a sport coat and put on dress shoes for the concert, viewing the poker game through the open bedroom door. He finished dressing before the cash-out. Men staggered the time of their exit, leaving by different elevators and different doors. I'm ready when you are, Darwin said. Put the cash in the hotel safe. Will do, Darwin said, and held up his paired keys to the safety deposit box. How'd you do? Luther shrugged. Look, kid, I got more to do tonight. I can't go to the opening. She'll be disappointed, Darwin said. Hey, it's urgent. Luther walked to the stacks of cash. He picked up 50000 Where will you be, Darwin asked. I can't tell you. So it was a big game. Too secret to reveal. Luther was trying to cover his losses. Leave me a message, Darwin said. 
if I can, and tell Sweeney I'm sorry. Darwin stared at Luther in surprise at Luther's rare display of concern for Sweeney. I'd love to see your show, Luther concluded. Darwin doubted that, though. What should I tell her? Darwin asked. Tell her I had to meet a guy they're recruiting as a free agent, Luther said. Maybe Sweeney would accept that, but only to prevent the hurt of knowing the truth. Darwin arrived at the concert early, the rows of seats filling mostly with teenage fans. The tickets were center, front row balcony, something Darwin was sure Sweeney had selected personally so Luther would have legroom. The show opened at full intensity. From a stage darkened to a black hole, hundreds of lights blazed, and blue and white laser-like spots crisscrossed. And with the band simultaneously starting, Sweeney was catapulted through a trapdoor from below stage with fog so she seemed to magically emit from another dimension. She was sound-fitted with a head-mounted wireless mic, and she carried her amplified acoustic guitar supported by a shoulder strap. She glittered in a white knee-length dress with a white collar and short sleeve trimmed with lace. The screams of her fans deadened recognizable sounds for a few seconds until the heartbeat of the band filtered through. Sweeney stepped forward and sang a song every fan knew and loved, the audience mouthing the words, swinging to the rhythm. Her songs were hers, taken from her life, her split with her parents, how she felt bad for the rapper whose career tumbled when sales had dropped months before, and unrequited love which Darwin thought was a reference to Luther, although there was no direct reference. Backup singers and dancers entertained behind and beside her, and every song stimulated new tears, moans of sympathy, and adoration from her fans. Her style had blossomed from country roots to take in pop and rock, and with a distinct Sweeney honesty and tenderness to her voice that made her stand out from the other pop culture artist. She's incredible, Darwin thought. He knew music, and he followed the melodies with admiration for Sweeney's talent and immersed himself in the harmonies, often with progressions and leads from classic and jazz performance heritages. As Luther had told him, after the show he went outside the theater to the stage door. He called, and Sweeney met him in a few minutes wrapped in a robe. Where's Luther? she asked. Couldn't make it, Darwin said the hurt creased lines in Sweeney's face. He said he had to meet with a free agent the team was recruiting. Sweeney turned her head and wiped a tear away from her eye with the sleeve of her robe. Sweeney led Darwin back toward her dressing room. On the way backstage, she said hello and hugged more than 50 of her fans. She briefly talked with the director and stage manager to set times for rehearsal and set design changes in the morning followed by promotional news spots to be shot in the auditorium lobby. In her dressing room, she changed into jeans and a sweatshirt and took Darwin to her bus, parked with, he couldn't see them all, at least seven others behind the auditorium in a parking area patrolled by security. He found the bus interior as roomy and comfortable as a bus interior could be, decorated in pink pastel, creams, and white shag carpeting. Sweeney got ginger ales in cans from an under-counter refrigerator for both of them. They sat in overstuffed swivel chairs in a lounge area. I wish Luther could have come. He's never seen one of my shows. 
Darwin decided not to mention the increasing frequency of the poker games, although he thought Sweeney should know, but not from him. It was a great show, Sweeney. Don't you worry about breaking a leg in the opening, that popping up from below stage out of nowhere? I have to jump from the platform when it stops. In heels. God, is scary. Holding the guitar. The effect is spectacular. I'm glad. The song is my most popular now. I couldn't hear the first part. It's loud. We repeat the first verse and refrain three times before going on in the song. So you didn't miss anything if you heard it by the third time through. The fans were so loud Darwin didn't hear many of the lyrics until the later songs when tempo slowed a little and the crowd was slightly subdued. Did you like the costumes? I did. Do you design them? My ideas mainly, but I always have final approval. A designer does the technical stuff and makes the improvements. Wardrobe will be working all night making adjustments. In what? The dress for the opening scene, for example. I thought it looked too short on the video monitors. But you thought it looked okay before the opening? The perception is always different in front of the audience, and lots of the costumes need adjustment when you open in a new town, a new stage, a new audience. Darwin leaned back. I didn't know you stayed in the bus on tour. Not always. But when we open, I like to be near the cast and crew. We'll have meetings tonight for changes to be made tomorrow. Darwin put down his empty ginger ale can. Will you tell Luther I missed him? Sweeney said. I probably won't see him. I'm at the Palmer House. He's at the Hilton. Why? He likes to have a place to hide. So I book away from his hotel. So a suite is available if he wants. There was no need to add. It was usually for poker. Sweeney gave him a hug. Thanks for coming, she said. It gave me new wonderment of what you do. But you like my songs? He smiled. I like them a lot, he said honestly. Luther was in the Palmer House suite when Darwin arrived. He was drinking whiskey straight from the bottle, stretched out on the sofa with his feet on a coffee table, looking at a basketball game. Darwin put a to-go sandwich he'd picked up in the lobby on the kitchen island and got water from the cold spigot in the refrigerator door. He sat on a stool to eat, his back to Luther. Luther muted a commercial. You get good tips this afternoon, he said. 450, Darwin said. Luther chuckled. I told you I'd take care of you. Darwin ate without turning. I got pissed off tonight, Luther said. Left the game early. Guy with bad teeth and a scar on his face, so he had no expression at all. Stranger to me. I think he was cheating. You confront him? Nah, I wasn't sure. But you lost. Eh, it wasn't real bad. Darwin removed a toothpick that held together the second half of his sandwich. The tuna in the sandwich smelled slightly putrid, and Darwin threw it out after two bites. He finished his drink and put his can in the sink. The game was back on. Luther punched on the volume. Darwin headed for the bedroom. Where are you going? Luther swigged from the bottle. Darwin paused but didn't answer. Hey, how was it with Sweeney? The show was great. She pissed? If she was, she didn't show it. But she was hurt. 
Darwin just didn't want to reveal Sweeney's vulnerability, which Luther seemed to thrive on at times. Should I send her something? Luther asked. Uh, it's up to you, Darwin said. Ah, women. Luther cut the volume a little. Send her some flowers. Perfume, maybe? More personal? Hey, do the flowers. Darwin turned and leaned against the doorframe. Luther was staring at the game. You don't think she's taking advantage of me, do you? Luther said, moving in the mansion and all. Sweeney? Darwin said. He stalled to find the right words. Sweeney was moving in to be near Luther. She's gone most of the time on tour, recording in the city, Darwin said. She doesn't move in to take advantage of you. Should I charge her? Luther said. She's your girlfriend, your fiancé. She can afford it. She loves you. Well, I love her. Well, don't charge her for staying at your house, Darwin said. Luther took another drink. I got to teach you about women, my friend. You're a fucking moron. That would be great, Darwin said, knowing his sarcasm would never pierce Luther. I'm going to read, he added, his mood suddenly soured. I'll use the second bedroom. Luther's eyes never left the screen as Darwin closed the bedroom door. Ah, it's a shitty game anyway, Darwin heard Luther say to himself. Chapter 12 In football season, Darwin traveled for the second time as Luther's assistant to Seattle for an away game. A poker game was almost impossible on football weekends, but Luther, who rarely traveled with the team, and only when he couldn't avoid it, said he was staying over an extra day so poker might be possible before he flew back for practice on Tuesday. Darwin accepted his increasing number of chores, often activities Luther had trouble finding discreet people he trusted to do right. Darwin was eager to save tip money for schooling. He still feared that Luther might somehow block money already in trust for him from the estate. They were headed to the airport VIP lounge to wait to board. Hey, walk down to the bookstore with me, Luther said to Darwin. Luther reached into his gym bag that he never put down. He handed Darwin a small package wrapped in an old fast food bag encircled and tied with twine. Hey, I just heard we got a game, Luther said. Darwin put the cash in his backpack. It felt big enough for about 25000 in hundreds and fifties. Not much for a big game. This probably was a pickup with nerds where Luther thought he could win. All Luther's poker was carried out in cash, never on the cuff. When Luther was lucky, he stored winnings in his room at the mansion, in a safe concealed in the floor beneath his bedroom trophy case. People stared at Luther with recognition. You and Sweeney ever getting married? Darwin asked. Luther slapped him on the shoulder with the back of his hand without breaking stride. Where do you get off talking that shit? It's important to her. You like her? Luther mocked. You ought to treat her better, Darwin said with reservation that Luther might anger. Luther was volatile and prone to outburst without much reason. I'm not going to be tied down, Luther said. Scares the shit out of me. She wants a name, maybe a family. People don't care about that shit anymore. A lot do. Granny says you'd be a better person. That's what everyone says. Ah, bullshit. 
And your image would improve. Uh, don't rap about image, my friend. My image is cool crap solid. Darwin doubled his step to keep up with Luther's increased pace. Luther went straight to the magazine rack and found copies of Sports Illustrated and Pro Football Weekly. He held them up to Darwin. Most of these guys think I'll make the playoffs this year, he said. You can't shit on that image. He handed the magazines to Darwin to pay. They started walking back to the gate. Everyone says you get more older fans, Darwin said. Luther walked on for a minute. You're crazy, he said. Fans love me for winning games, not where I put my wiener. It wouldn't hurt to be treating Sweeney right. Sweeney gets better than she deserves. Luther shook his head. We got time to go to the executive lounge? Eight minutes to boarding, Darwin said. Get on the phone to Randy to hire a jet. I'm not in the mood to go commercial. Lear? Challenger, I'll meet you at the bar in the exec lounge. Get it before five. Chapter 13 It was summer. Luther wore his best suit, dark blue with an off-white pinstripe and a solid red tie. He had his feet up, in lace-up soft leather brown Italian-made shoes on the limousine seat. His head was back, eyes closed, and he was stroking with his index left finger between the thumb and forefinger of his right hand. Darwin had been with him long enough to know the turmoil Luther faced when he lost his confidence among the socially prominent. I wonder how many will be on this committee, Luther said mostly to himself. Darwin had no idea. The country club was a mystery to him, although he had Mrs. Thomas purchase a restricted tennis residence membership for him so he could take lessons and play on the club's courts. For real membership, you had to be proposed by two members, interviewed by an admissions committee, and then voted on by the general membership. The maximum cap was 400 members and slots rarely opened. Luther wanted the social prestige that he felt he lacked, and he wanted to use, with his buddies, the nationally famous golf course in the off-season. Sweeney's birthday is coming up Friday, Darwin said. Oh, shit, we gotta do something nice, Luther mused. Take her out to dinner in the city. It's a hassle, Luther said. Get a private table. Take Eugene to keep people away. Luther took a while to make a decision. Ah, you're right, he said, his jaw set determinedly. Set it up, and get her a present, too. Darwin paused. She wants a ring. Hey, get her something nice. Ask Bonita. She wants an engagement ring. Luther moaned. Oh, God, I hate that shit. Everyone thinks you're engaged. Luther sat up and leaned forward toward Darwin. Uh, you've got a lot to learn about women, kid. A ring means she'll expect a lot of what I'm not ready to give. She loves you. It would mean a lot to her, and it wouldn't change anything. And you're out in public together. Luther paused, hindered by a sudden apprehension, but he rallied, knowing Darwin was telling him straight about Sweeney and her wants. Laszlo pulled the limo under the portico in front of the club, and got out to open the door for Luther. Okay, Luther said as he got out. You go ahead and do it. 
Get her a ring. Make it big to make her happy. Uh, what can I spend? Darwin asked. Luther turned to Darwin after he was out. Twenty thousand. Nothing more. She wants a solitary diamond. Luther sighed. Ah, oh, hell. Get her what she wants. After Luther was in the club, Darwin got out and slipped behind the wheel of the limo. Laszlo got in the passenger's side. Darwin eased the limo forward, drove to the parking facility. Laszlo pointed to a space. Darwin parallel parked easily. Then Laszlo laid out a series of three-point turns that Darwin could practice, all part of Laszlo's Darwin driver training strategy, the reason Darwin had come to him to bring Luther. A month later, Luther was turned down by the country club. Luther never spoke of it, but everyone knew. The morning after her engagement on her birthday, Sweeney ran into Darwin's room without knocking. He was still in his jockey shorts and no shirt. She made no sign of noticing, and he pulled on a pair of jeans while she was talking. Look, he gave me a ring. She held out her left hand to the light from the single window. It's beautiful, Sweeney. Almost two carats. Flawless. Perfect color. And we went to dinner. How did that go? Oh, it was wonderful. We had a private table and Eugene kept people away. I had lobster. And I had a birthday cake at the end. They baked it right there in the restaurant. I brought it home. I'll give you some. What did you talk about? Us, Darwin. He said our future was together. I'd never heard him speak like that. She teared up a little. He was wonderful and so thoughtful. He picked out the ring himself. That's just great, Darwin said. Really? I saw the real Luther, the one that I love. Darwin pulled on a T-shirt, then touched her arm to let her know he had to leave. I didn't know I could be so happy, she said as they walked down. Darwin left Sweeney in the foyer to go detail cars with Eugene. I hope every day is a birthday day for you from now on, he said. Thanks, Darwin. You're my best friend, she said. Chapter 14 It was weeks later. Luther was in San Diego. Darwin went down to the kitchen for breakfast cereal before his first tutor arrived. Granny was sitting at the kitchen table near a window with a view of the golf links. At the twelve-burner gas stove, Andre turned eggs over easy with a metal spatula in one hand and holding the handle of a shiny brass-bottom frying pan with the other. Granny was working a crossword puzzle and an easy book from a supermarket book rack. Darwin poured milk into his bowl, found a spoon in a drawer near a walk-in pantry, and sat at the table. Andre brought the eggs and toast to Granny. I hate them runny, Granny said to Andre. I make personal, not runny, Andre said. I should have had an omelet, Granny said. Andre's face remained blank. Clearly, he had no desire to prepare her an omelet. He said nothing. Granny ignored Andre's feelings. Go away, she said, dismissing him. Make an omelet. An egg-white omelet. Darwin added some cereal to a bowl and sat down again. Sweeney Pale, wrapped in a sandy-colored, fluffy pool robe, and no evidence of anything except maybe underthings underneath, 
came into the staff dining room by the back door that led to the stairs to the second floor. She was hesitant, as if she didn't belong, so different today than her usual, recently growing comfort about being in the house and with staff. Something had changed. Uh, could I get something to eat? she asked. Let me tell you, Granny said. Andre's not in good form today. But Granny was shaken by Sweeney's appearance in the kitchen for breakfast. It was a first. Darwin got up and took his bowl and spoon to the dishwasher conveyor rack near the prep island with a double sink. Uh, do you want cereal? he asked Sweeney. Is that all there is? I'll ask Andre, Darwin said. After Granny's omelet, Andre had escaped to the garage to listen to music, probably Sweeney's music on his iPhone, and he seemed unperturbed, if not excited, to prepare for Sweeney. He returned to the kitchen with Darwin, and Sweeney asked for French toast with bacon and a pitcher of maple syrup. Granny frowned at the developments. How do you stay so thin, eating like that? she said. Thank you, Andre. You're the best, Sweeney said, smiling with sincerity. Darwin stared. Sweeney had spent the night. He'd never known Sweeney to spend the night at the house, with or without Luther. He'd never seen her in the morning, at breakfast. She pulled up a chair and Darwin sipped coffee. Granny didn't look up. What are you doing here? she asked Sweeney. But Granny knew Sweeney had spent the night. Granny was Victorian in principles. She didn't like permanent live-ins living in sin, even with an engagement ring which, coming from Luther, Granny had thought was a sham. Sweeney, in Granny's mind, was a child harlot. She couldn't be in love with Luther. As usual, Sweeney fretted, and then decided she'd do best not to answer Granny, whose displeasure she felt on full display today. "'Are you staying for long?' Granny asked Sweeney. Sweeney turned to Darwin. "'Did you like my new video?' "'I haven't had a chance to see it,' Darwin said. But you still like my new music? He busied himself with pouring a cup of coffee. It's important to me, Darwin. What do you think? Darwin gathered material to make a sandwich to take to his room for lunch. For most days, when he was at the house, he now preferred reading while eating in the room, and not eating an Andre-cooked lunch with staff, who were served at a table in the kitchen and prone to non-stop gossip. I'll get to it soon, he said to Sweeney. Granny sipped coffee and closed her book of crosswords. "'Your health improving, uh, Mrs. Pennelly? Sweeney asked Granny over her shoulder. "'My health is perfect,' Granny said as she was about to leave, and she paused and turned to Sweeney. "'Will you be here again tonight, Miss Pale?' "'Yes, I believe I will,' Sweeney said with conviction. "'With Luther?' Granny asked boldly. "'I'll be staying in the South Wing.' The suite with the three rooms, if you must know. Granny was silent while she thought about the news. Would you be interested in a game of Scrabble? She finally said. Five dollars a round to play. Winner takes all. Sweeney sliced off a corner of French toast and placed a half rasher of bacon on it, holding it in the air as she said, I'm not very good, but yes, I would like to. She put food into her mouth secretly pleased with the invitation. "'I want you there, too, Darwin,' Granny said. Seven o'clock.'"
Chapter 15 Darwin found the education of public school inferior to the standards in Pittsburgh. He needed to build a broad foundation in math, languages, and science. And his parents had also taught him the importance of humanities and the arts for a satisfying career in medicine. And with Granny's financial help, he continued to seek out the best tutors available. He was starting with his math tutor session late one afternoon before dinner when Sweeney entered the room with a swift, urgent pace. I need to talk to you, she said. What for? In the kitchen. Darwin excused himself from the math tutor and followed her to the kitchen. Sweeney grabbed his arm and pulled him toward the window, past Chef Andre, who was slicing tomatoes on a cutting board near one of the sinks. Who is that? she asked. A girl, wearing goggles, earplugs, and a bright electric blue torso swimsuit, swam the crawl in one of the lanes. Her motions were smooth, measured, and graceful. He'd seen her before when he first arrived, but he had not seen her since. Her kick splashed the water's surface like a tiny engine, and she left a small wake that rippled out behind her like a speedboat might on a still lake. "'Well?' Sweeney asked. "'How would I know?' Darwin said. You live here, Darwin. Sweeney turned to Andre. Do you know who that is? She asked. But Andre shook his head no, looking fully knowledgeable, but afraid to speak up. She could have snuck in or something, Sweeney said. She was agitated more than afraid. Few others used the pool, none regularly, and she'd come to think of it as her private possession on the ground. Not possible to sneak past security, Darwin said. Ask Mrs. Thomas. I've known her daughter visits here every now and then. He turned away from Sweeney. I need to get back. Find out, Darwin. Please, I want to know. She grabbed his arm again and pulled him toward the door. I think you can use the pool any time, Darwin said. It's Olympic size. The four lanes are fifty meters. You can use the side lanes near the diving tower. Plenty of room. Just find out. I don't like strangers. They went out to the edge of the pool and waited until the girl swam up. She gave no indication that she'd seen them and made a graceful underwater turn and surfaced starting the breaststroke, a change from the crawl she'd been doing. She's not an amateur, Darwin said. Make her stop. She looks like she belongs. And what does that mean? I'll call the guardhouse, Sweeney. Stay here. He walked to the white, painted wooden poolside stand where the phone was stored. The guard knew. She's Mrs. Thomas's daughter, Darwin told Sweeney. The girl had pulled herself out of the water at the end of the pool. She bent over a few times, stretching her back, hamstrings, and quads, then rotated her arms in circles to the sides. She was slim, maybe five, three, or four, with the broad shoulders and tapered physique of a swimmer. When she took off her rubber bathing cap, her dark hair fell to her shoulders, the ends highlighted where water had seeped in. She was strikingly attractive. With a towel around her shoulders, the girl had walked to Mrs. Thomas's. "'You'll have it all to yourself now,' Darwin said, irritated that Sweeney would bring her outrage to him and not Luther. She was obviously jealous, probably generated by a gnawing distrust of Luther, the inveterate philanderer. Yet she still seemed to love him. Ah, the mysteries of the heart, Darwin thought." I don't think there's anything wrong with her using the pool, Darwin said. Talk to Luther if you want to keep her out. I can't bother him. 
then accepted. It doesn't seem a big deal to me. Her mother works here. That gives her the privilege. He returned to his tutor before Sweeney could argue. Chapter 16 Sweeney spent weeks taping her latest video. She stayed in a hotel near the studio most of the time, but when she was finished, she came to stay with Luther and spent a few days at the house, which she now considered home. She wanted to see a movie that she had a cameo in and asked Darwin and Granny if they wanted to go to the local theater, and then she'd take them to dinner at the seafood place on the beach. Darwin drove them in a new BMW 700 series sedan. It was on trial. Granny pretended it was a great inconvenience, but Darwin knew on the interior she was thrilled. Why do you think she asked me? She said to him as they were waiting for Sweeney to try to make herself look not like herself when she was in public. She does like you, Darwin said. She doesn't like me at all, she said, but with a side glance and a conspiratorial smile to Darwin. Granny believed, with some pride, that all but a few didn't really like her. She had tired of people she found uninteresting. She's got a good heart, Granny, Darwin said. Sweeney came down into the foyer on the right side of the open-armed staircase. She paused on the landing and threw out her arms. What do you think? They stared. She'd put up her hair in a twist. She had on a little girl frilly white dress with a collar. The mid-thigh hem and sleeve trim was in pink to match her pink Mary Jane shoes. She had on stockings with a white and pink checkerboard pattern. She looked like a cross between Lolita and Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. And that was what Granny told her. But do you like it? she asked. I thought you wanted to go incognito, Granny said. It's just to the movies, for goodness sake. Disappointment swept across Sweeney's face. Do you think I should change? You look just great, Darwin said. Let's go. Is it all right with you, Granny? Sweeney asked. Granny pursed her lips. Of course it's all right, she paused. Every eye will be on you. But they won't know it's me, will they? Good Lord, child, you look fantastic, Granny said with slight impatience. Darwin glanced at Granny. She seemed sincere and she was smiling in a way that was new to him as she hobbled over and took Sweeney's hand. After the movie, they drove to the restaurant. Sweeney and Granny were in the back seat. It wasn't a very good movie, was it? Sweeney said. You were good, Granny said. You stood right up there and said your lines. I was only on for 36 seconds. It took two days to shoot. Did you like that Damon guy, Darwin said? It was Rex Stout. I never saw him. None of the stars were there when I did my scene. Did you make a lot of money? 250000 No residuals. They wanted my name on the film. Well, you're a movie star now, Granny said. Darwin could see in the rearview mirror that Sweeney was pleased with Granny's interest. After they were seated at the table, Sweeney signed four autographs for people who had instantly recognized her. They're so rude, Granny said as Sweeney left to sign a few more. I'd tell them to mind their own business. She sees autographs as her business, Darwin said. Sweeney never turned down an autograph if she had time. 
Fan adoration was important to her. She'd said that to Darwin many times, with a sense of awe and respect for those who liked her. She interpreted any dislike of her music as a personal rejection, and it seemed to weigh heavily on her at times. Darwin saw Betsy Thomas before Granny did, but said nothing. Sweeney wouldn't recognize Betsy even if she had seen her. Betsy had evaded Sweeney too successfully during the rare times Betsy and Sweeney were at the mansion at the same time. There's Betsy, Granny finally said. Betsy was waiting the booths along the wall. She had on the establishment's white and brown uniform dress that showed her shapely muscular legs. Betsy had glanced toward their table only once and looked away when Granny saw her. She had light blue eyes in sharp contrast to her ebony black hair. She returned a few minutes later, many tables away, and waved briefly without smiling at Darwin only, and did not look their way again. "'Do you know her well, Darwin?' Sweeney asked. "'I know her only as Mrs. Thomas's daughter. I've said hello sometimes. You saw her at the pool before you moved into the house.' "'Oh, is she the one I heard at the pool early, before dawn?' She still does swim sometimes, Darwin said, but not often. And well before most of us are up, Darwin thought. Does she get along well with her mother? Sweeney asked Granny. Granny didn't acknowledge the question, even though Benita Thomas's stress over the rare visits of Betsy, conveyed mostly at Scrabble games, was common knowledge to both Darwin and Granny. Their food came. Tell Betsy Thomas we said hello, Granny said to the server. Granny picked the skin off her chicken. I bet you eat in some really nice places, she said to Sweeney. Sweeney was lost in thought. Does Betsy have a boyfriend? she asked Granny. I don't really know, Granny said. She lives in town, works and goes to school, but Nita's never talked about any boyfriends. But I think she does date occasionally when she's not in training. She's a swimmer and spends most of her spare time getting in shape to compete. Do you like her? Sweeney asked Darwin. I told you, I've never really known her. Did you ever want to date her? I never got to know her that well. She looks athletic. I bet men like her, don't they? Like the muscular look? Darwin shrugged. Although they were about the same height, compared to Betsy, Sweeney was a twig. I think she's pretty, Granny said. Sweeney frowned and remained thoughtful with little conversation until they left to go back to the house. Chapter 17 It was a weeknight when Luther brought his teammate Tommy and a couple of the girls they'd met in the city back to the house for an impromptu party. Luther told Colette, the maid, to take the night off after she'd made the girls comfortable, and he phoned Darwin in his room to take care of the four of them in private. Luther and Tommy were in the rec room with the girls. "'Hey, you girls go to the powder room now,' Luther said. He turned up the volume of the music on the stereo near the wet bar. "'You ain't got no powder room down here,' one said. "'There's a bathroom with a stool for your ass.' and a mirror to powder your nose. Now go piss and wash under your armpits and do whatever else you need to do. Take them some beer and chips, Luther said to Darwin. Be sure the door to the bathroom is closed. 
and the door at the top of the stairs, too. Darwin did as told, expecting to be well compensated, and sat down on the steps to read a textbook, ready to respond to Luther's call if needed, and he overheard their conversation. Luther took a pool cue from the rack and handed one to Tommy, then leaned against the table looking at Tommy standing in the shadow of the overhead light. Hey, what's on your mind, Tommy? It's like you're not the same person anymore. You know I love you, man, Tommy said, readjusting his stance and leaning on his cue. Like we've been together since college, man. Not just the draft. I know that, Tommy. Luther was taking pool balls out of the corner pocket and rolling them to the head of the table. I'm not in the mood for old times, Luther said. What's bugging your ass, Tommy? It's like you're afraid to come out with it. Luther picked up a remote control and brought a muted picture to the screen on the giant TV at the end of the room. A taped rerun of American Idol. He liked this black girl singer who got booted off, and he liked to look at her, but he didn't care too much for her voice. It's like you're ignoring me, man, Tommy said. Luther's eyes left the screen, and when he saw Tommy's face creased with worry, he cut off the picture and leaned back against the table. The girl was finished singing anyway. What's this ignoring? It's you, man. Speak up, Luther said. I'm up for contract next year, Tommy said. Hell, they love you, man. I know it. My stats are down, way down. The coach told me. What stats? You're a tight end. You block. Passes, tackles. One TD in three years. The roots are designed for a wideout. I mean, you're a second or third if you're lucky. I'm the dump-off on the slant, and you never throw it, even when I'm wide open. i got to make choices, Tommy. You'll never be a prime receiver. I'm prime on 32 right, or 2A6 option. This team is weak in the center, Tommy. I'm open on the blitz. You even look at me and throw the ball away. Luther shook his head. Ah, uh, you're a friend, Tommy, but I can't have you talking like that. I throw where the chances are fucking good it's going to get caught. I would make it. You just got to throw it to me. Mostly for short yardage, man. What's three or four yards on third and fifteen? It's not always short. Sometimes it's first down yardage. You know that's true. And our third down conversions are shit most of the time anyway. Always throwing it incomplete fifty yards to those black guys... It's like you owe them or something. Don't speak down on Creshawn, Luther said. He is the man. He won't carry you to the Super Bowl by himself. Bullshit. We'll make the playoffs for sure. Maybe not. Well, it won't be due whether I throw you the ball or not, Tommy. You're not that good. And you don't get open that often. And when you run, you're like a fucking rhinoceros going backward. Tommy hung his head and looked at the floor. After a minute, he said, I'm not asking for special treatment, Luther. Just give me a chance. I want a few more years. Luther laughed without humor. You'll get them, Tommy. It'll come. Trust me. Not with some bottom scraper team, Luther. I don't want that. There was a long pause before Tommy spoke. I'd do it like Creshawn, he said. Jesus, God, your brain got stomped. But there was definitely a strain in Luther's voice now and a new tension in the air. What the fuck are you talking about? 
Tommy cleared his throat. I mean, what if I give you 5K for a completion, 20K for a TD? That's shit, Tommy. You're fucking crazy. But Darwin could tell Luther wasn't sure what Tommy knew. I'd do it, Tommy said. Wouldn't be any skin off your ass. I'd never do that shit, Luther said. Christ. That's not the word. You hear that word from Creshawn? Tell me. That what he told you? Tommy didn't speak. But there was a click of balls as Luther captured a few in the rack. Your mouth needs to be washed out, Luther said. That kind of talk gets you hurt, Tommy. I'm in, Tommy said, whether you like it or not. You'll get your money. Just throw me the goddamn ball. A cue stick cracked as it hit the edge of the table. If you ever speak crap like this again to anybody, I'll kill you, Luther said. Right, you're going to kill me. You're going to jab me with a cue stick, break my neck? Luther swung the bottom half of the cue stick and hit Tommy on his arm he had raised to protect his head. Tommy groaned. Luther swung again and hit him square on the temple. Tommy cried out and hit the floor hard. Get out, Luther said. Don't let me hear any rumors you might have started. I'll cut your balls off. Darwin slipped quickly into the gym and waited until Tommy crawled to the top where he must have stood. His steps could be heard as he made his way through the foyer and out the front door to his car. Before Luther moved from the rec room, Darwin got the girls out of the powder room and took them upstairs to wait for a taxi. By then, Luther had gone to the kitchen for a good drink of whiskey. I want to say goodbye to Luther, one of the girls said to Darwin. Not possible tonight, Darwin said. Luther's so cute, she said. Darwin couldn't think of a response to that. He walked the girls to the front gate, where a taxi arrived in minutes. Chapter 18 Three months later, on a Wednesday after midnight, Darwin was awakened when Luther came into the house with a man from the garage. Darwin could hear them descend the stairs into the rec room. There was a sense of foreboding in the air with the gruff intensity of the conversation. Darwin overcame his hesitancy to pry and leaned against the door at the top of the stairs. Don't come here, he heard Luther say. It don't look good. The man said nothing. Darwin opened the door a crack. They were near the pool table away from the stairs facing each other. The man struck a match, sucked on a cigarette. I go where I want, the man said. He paused. It's been two months. Luther's breathing quickened. Well, you should have got it by now. Don't bullshit me. It's insulting. Luther shrugged. Hey, I'm waiting for cash flow. Cigarette smoke diffused in the air. The man continued in a gravelly voice. He was much shorter than Luther and Pudgy. You've got a playoff game coming up. You're healthy. Odds are five to two you win. Hey, we will win. They've got a backup in for quarterback. Not worth a shit. What we have here is potential, the man said. Potential for us to make it big, and potential for you to start to break even. Hey, I can't throw a football game, Luther said. Not most of them. But this one is right. Playoffs, equal records. 
We've hedged it with two other close games. I suggest, if you have the opportunity, you do it. Luther groaned softly. I can't do it. It's like better than going to hell, the man said. I don't take to no threats, Luther said, but his voice was less loud and lacked the usual bravado. I'm coming up for some endorsements soon. That is crap. Last year's contract was your collateral, but that won't go anymore. You know I'm good for it, Luther said. The man uttered a cruel, odious laugh. Luther said nothing. I got to hear a yes, the man said. Or what, Luther said. You can't imagine. There was a long silence. Luther nodded. I'm not coming back again, the guy said. He left Luther alone in the rec room and went to let himself out. Darwin went quietly to his room and tried to sleep on his floor mattress, but he was wide awake until morning, ashamed of Luther's behavior and afraid for his future. He hoped Luther had the good sense to never act on what he had just heard. Darwin still had instinctive pride in Luther's super-success. He wondered how much Sweeney knew. Probably not much, if anything. Sweeney and Darwin sat in seats procured by Luther in the VIP section for the divisional playoffs. The pregame activities captivated Sweeney. Darwin was sure she had no knowledge of Luther's troubles, financial or on the field. Sweeney stood and cheered when Luther's name was called over the loudspeakers as part of the team introductions. From the kickoff on, she moaned and gasped, caught up in the tension of the play. The game progressed interrupted by many penalties. Luther's passing seemed almost efficient, but still tenuous. At the half, Luther's team was down by a field goal, but they rallied early in the second half to lead for a quarter, only to fall behind again near the end of the game. It was 31-28, to 28, with 32 seconds to go. Luther was losing. In the huddle, Creshawn's eyes sought Luther's, but Luther was busy searching his playlist. Luther had thrown Creshawn one pass since the first half, a low, swoopy ball that he caught. And Luther had completed 12 passes out of 27 to the other receivers. Not very impressive. But I should have thrown more to Creshawn, Luther thought. It was fourth down and they were on their own 45-yard line. Luther called for play action, and he let Creshawn know the coach wanted him as far downfield, matched with that new linebacker, in as an injury replacement that wasn't worth a shit. Yes, that was what the coach had said on the sideline. Luther let Creshawn know with his eyes, although Luther had changed the play. The ball was snapped, the protection not as bad as Luther expected. He saw Creshawn raise his hand as he ran toward the end zone. The linebacker guy was right on top of Creshawn, but Creshawn angled toward the sideline, then cut back, leaving the guy stumbling to get on track. Poor Creshawn. This would be one of those passes he'd waited for his whole career. The division championship. The chance for a Super Bowl ring on his finger. A pass that would rerun on the highlight reels like the time Matt Dragon broke his leg in Dallas. Luther made his read looked off the safety, faking to his right. Then he cocked and looked to Creshawn. The defensive guy was back on Creshawn. It was a long way, but Luther trusted his arm, and Luther had decided he was going to get the ball to Creshawn no matter what the consequences. Luther had maneuvered the game pretty well so far, 
as if he'd tried. So what if he did win? No one could blame him when he'd obviously tried so hard to lose. But in a flash, Luther felt the fear of losing it all. Career ruin, poverty, the drug rumors circulated. Luther threw it toward Creshawn, but he took a lot off it. It would never get to Creshawn. It would look like an underthrown ball and that his arm was tired. The ball soared toward Creshawn. Creshawn's eyes locked on it. Thank you, God and Luther, Creshawn thought. He was still running through the red zone, over the goal line now, into the end zone. God fucking damn. The ball was short, way underthrown. He reversed his field, the light glue guy right with him. The ball was arcing down, a little wobbly, if he could get to it. But the light glue guy who had been behind him was now closer to the ball. The glint of the little fucker's eyes lit up the inside of his helmet. The ball was close. Creshawn got both legs under him and sprung up into the air. The light glue guy was right with him, his arms outstretched. The ball was almost in the twerp's hands. Creshawn reached over the little fucker's short arms and plucked the ball out of his grasp. Creshawn had to stay upright. He couldn't go down until he was in the end zone. They'd lose possession. He twisted in the air so his shoulders faced the goal, even though his hips were still turned toward the sideline. On the way down, his knee pounded the chest of the little faggot whose feet were on the ground, and the guy fell back and away. Creshawn's left foot touched solid ground, and he shoved toward the goal, starting his stride. The safety was coming at him from the right, but he left his feet to tackle early enough for Creshawn to angle past him, barely touching Creshawn's leg with his last desperate grasp, and then Creshawn dropped into high gear with energy never seen before. In the end zone, he laid the ball on the turf like the Holy Grail and traced the sign of the cross on his chest, although he was raised Baptist and rarely thought of Christ or God. Luther rose to a half-sitting position where he landed after he'd been decked. Everyone expected he should go crazy, but fear seized him and he froze for a few seconds before a nose guard and a running back wrestled him to his feet and gave him bear hugs and chest pumps. We won! Sweeney was on her feet cheering. Darwin stood slowly. He wasn't sure exactly what happened. Was that what Luther intended? And he couldn't imagine what the impact of winning would have on Luther and on all of them. You could show a little more enthusiasm, Sweeney scolded. We're going to the finals. They sat back down as the teams lined up for the kickoff. There were only 23 seconds on the clock. Luther will be so happy. I mean, Creshawn did the impossible. Did you see it? Darwin was surprised Luther didn't try to fake celebration now. Luther walked back dejected, as if they'd lost the game. I wonder if he's hurt, Sweeney said. I don't think so. Not physically, Darwin said. Why are you being so weird? Sweeney said. They sat down. The ball sailed into the air off the kicker's toe. The hang time was long. The run back was seven yards. The next play was a drop pass that stopped the clock. The last play was a pass with two laterals that didn't get anywhere near the 50-yard line. The whistle sounded game end, and parts of the crowd erupted onto the field past the security blockade. Why aren't you happy for them? Sweeney asked. I'm glad they won, Darwin said but his emotions were too jumbled to show the sincere enthusiasm she expected. He couldn't tell her what he knew and suspected. He couldn't divert her love for Luther. 
for her sake and for Luther's. Chapter 19 Summer was busy for Darwin. He now prepared intensively with tutors to graduate Exeter. He needed top grades for college application that would begin soon. Luther had free time before training began and still often asked Darwin to travel with him, driving, taking care of schedules and paying bills, and monitoring poker matches that Luther arranged in almost every city they visited. Laszlo also hired him for security details, mostly driving, but occasionally working with bodyguard Eugene when extra men were needed for Luther's protection in public. Darwin still lived in his storeroom. Luther had never suggested a change, and Darwin liked the isolation and saw no reason to press the issue. Luther had promised Sweeney a vacation together at the end of her summer U.S. tour, before training camp, to help her relax. Luther was going to see Sweeney's final performance, his first, in Seattle, and they were to leave for Nassau. But the week he was to leave, the press released evidence of Luther's alleged use of performance-enhancing drugs. Luther denied the charges in repeated press conferences. Many coaches and teammates and the team owners supported him. Evidence of negative random drug testing was released. Luther was busy preparing for depositions and lobbying for support. He told Darwin to meet Sweeney in Seattle, go with her to the hotel in Nassau, and take care of her until he arrived. At the hotel, Darwin checked out Sweeney's ocean view suite for comfort and amenities, as Luther would demand if he had been there. Have you heard yet when he'll be here? Sweeney asked Darwin as he was about to go to his room. He hasn't called, he said. It's bad, isn't it? Who knows? Lots of athletes are accused and nothing happens. It's hard to prove. And a few have been acquitted of lying before Congress, even with solid evidence. Who did this to him? It must have been someone who really hates him. I'm not sure, Darwin said. He's not that bad, is he? To deserve this? He'll make it through this. He always seems to survive. But Darwin was sure it was more than investigative reporting. He remembered the threats of exposure of drug use in the rec room. There must be evidence, witnesses. I'm afraid to think he's guilty, Sweeney said, closing the drapes over the floor-to-ceiling picture window. You know, don't you, Darwin? Not for sure. But you've been somewhere where it could have happened? I've been suspicious, but never could be sure. I've never seen him take drugs. I've never actually seen him take any either, Sweeney lay on the bed. I'm exhausted, she said. Call me if you need me, Darwin said as he left for his run-of-the-mill room. It was mid-afternoon when he explored the hotel, looked into the casino, walked to the beach. He found the tennis courts. In the pro shop, he bought tennis clothes and rented a racket, arranged for a lesson in the morning, and put his name on a list to pick up a game of singles. Back in the lobby, he browsed a bookshop, bought two books, and settled in a comfortable stuffed chair in the lobby. The next morning, Darwin had breakfast in the dining room. It was early. Sweeney slipped into the restaurant near the receptionist's podium, shyly taking cover next to a corn plant. She had on shorts and a halter, big sunglasses and a floppy-brimmed straw hat. A towel draped her shoulders. 
A young male fan at a window table recognized her and raised his arm, but she turned away quickly to come to Darwin's table. She sat down. Is he here? she asked. Haven't heard from him yet. Do you think he'll come today? He'll probably just show up. Maybe not today. Has he called you at all? She shook her head. He's scared, Darwin. I know him. Inside he's a little boy. She stared toward the window at nothing in particular as she spoke. I've rented a sailboat. I wanted to cruise the islands with him, she said. That sounds great, Sweeney. It's for today. I don't want to cancel. I can email him again, try to find out when he'll get in. Would you go? The captain said he could go only if I found a man to help crew with his assistant. That's part of what he thinks makes his cruises so popular. Involvement with the passengers. And he doesn't need to pay for help, Darwin smiled. She considered that for a second, as if it hadn't occurred to her. I just didn't want to ask someone from the hotel or a fan. Would you go? I've never sailed, Darwin said. He said no experience was necessary and that I could help too. Darwin thought for a second. Sure, he said. It would be an adventure. The yacht was a 40-foot chenoux with a 50-foot mast and a furling Genoa. Inside was luxury accommodation that easily slept six. They motored out of the harbor, the captain at the helm and the mate instructing Darwin and Sweeney to help make ready for the sail. We usually have at least one more crew. But the weather's doable today, the mate said. Sweeney asked how many passengers. Sometimes up to twelve. Sometimes couples come alone. With couples, they usually want to help, he said. When Sweeney went below to find drinks, the mate turned to Darwin. Is that the real Sweeney Pale? Darwin wondered if the kid might harass Sweeney over the next few hours, but he'd been polite and accommodating to them both. Yes, Darwin said. She looks different in person, the mate said. You mean less glamorous? Still glamorous but not the same. Ordinary? I'm a fan, man. Never ordinary. Within half an hour, the yacht headed northeast, in open water, on a broad reach with moderate winds. The captain was at the helm. The mate was tightening a starboard shroud. Sweeney sat to windward, and Darwin was with the captain who explained sail angles and pointed to the telltale. He let Darwin take the wheel, although he stayed close. Darwin found the edge of the wind, but compensated too much, pointing too high. The captain helped him regain the point, and the solid forward motion of the yacht picked up, and the sail filled to maximum with the steady early afternoon breeze. Look, Sweeney called back. To the south, a cigarette boat was rapidly approaching, long, sleek, and loud, a single occupant driving, his dark shirt rippling in the airfoils created by the speed. How fast do they go? Darwin asked the captain. Well, over a hundred knots when the surface permits. The driver waved. He began circling the yacht with a radius of a hundred yards or more. Sweeney waved. He doesn't look like a drug runner, the captain said. Boat like that can outrun almost anything the authorities used. He looks like a guy with lots of cash for a hobby. What would he pay for that? Darwin asked. That one knew would be close to half a million. 
Probably he has some lease arrangement, expensive but without cash outlay, that most of them don't have for their toys. The boat continued circling closer with each round, roughing the water. The captain swore and took the wheel from Darwin. Idiot, the captain said. Darwin moved closer to Sweeney, who crouched near the mast. The mate stopped working on a force day, but was standing watching and turning toward the boat. Is that dangerous? Sweeney asked. Captain said he's probably a hobbyist, Darwin said. It's so loud. Fast and powerful. They continued to watch. The mate came to them. Could he be a pirate? Darwin asked. The mate shrugged. Uh, he's acting kind of strange. The roar of the engine increased. The boat jolted out of the tight left circle. The driver had brought up his legs. He squatted on the seat. He had put on a dark blue life vest, barely visible against the background of the water. The boat now stayed in a right turn. The man slumped down further to disappear behind the windscreen. The boat accelerated and straightened out, the bow rising into the air. It was pointed straight at them, the distance between them closing rapidly, a few seconds to impact. Get down, the mate yelled over the noise. The bow hit the starboard side near the stern. The captain threw up his arms in a useless attempt to protect himself. The beam was yanked from the starboard to port. The mast cracked. The severed rear of the yacht broke away from the midsection. The cigarette boat mounted almost to vertical veered away from the stern and exploded in air. Sweeney screamed. The heat burned their skin. The captain was gone. The splintered yacht fragments fell in the water. Dense black smoke rose from the flames. We're going down, the mate said. The captain, Sweeney cried. The yacht was listing. The mate helped Darwin from under the fallen mask. Help me with the dinghy, he yelled to Darwin over the noise. Within seconds they had the dinghy free. Get in, he said. Sweeney climbed in, then Darwin. What was left of the yacht's mangled stern was now already underwater. The mate climbed in the dinghy and attached the oars. Push off, he said. Darwin shoved, gripping the mast that was now half submerged. His arm bled from a cut. The mate rowed. They moved away. The heat was less intense. The yacht went under, sucking the dinghy down. The mate pulled against the undertow. The dinghy rocked silently, then straightened up after the yacht disappeared. Quiet descended. Are you okay? The mate asked. Darwin stared at the scattered remains of the cigarette boat, the flames and the smoke still intense from the parts that still floated. Oh, God, Sweeney said. Darwin looked. The captain floated face up a few feet away. His remaining burned clothes did not cover his charred skin. The flap of his scalp separated from the skull. His jaw was missing, but what was left of his face was twisted with the horror of his death. Sweeney covered her face with her hands. Darwin looked away. The mate rode faster, away from the corpse, that they could see for many minutes rocking in the waves. It won't be long until someone finds us, the mate said. The smoke is visible for miles. After the rescue, Darwin helped Sweeney avoid reporters and paparazzi, hospital personnel and guests, who were all aware now of who Sweeney was and where she was staying. Investigators agreed to wait for intensive interviews until the next morning. Luther called. He had contacted Laszlo to fly in. Why? Sweeney asked on the phone. 
Well, I don't think it was an accident, Luther answered. Darwin silently agreed. Sweeney disconnected the phones to her suite. She couldn't eat. She took a tranquilizer the hotel manager had supplied. She was sleeping fitfully when Darwin left her for the night. In his room, sleep did not come easily. The room was dark, the shades drawn. He stayed in bed. But through his exhaustion, the vivid images of the day stayed with him. He finally drifted into a troubled sleep. A knock on his door brought Darwin to a delayed reminder of where he was. The knock repeated, louder. He went to the door. It's Sweeney. Let me in. She was in night clothes with bare feet and wrapped in a dark brown hotel robe. She slipped in through the door and went to an armchair. She sat down, put her head back, and closed her eyes, both bare feet hanging and barely touching the floor. Do you want something? Darwin asked. She cried silently. He couldn't see tears, as if they were used up. He sat down on an armless chair that he turned away from a small desk and waited. As she relaxed, she stopped crying. She brought her feet up under her and curled, so her head was supported by the chair's arm. She started breathing slowly and deeply. I can't be alone, she said. I see that man. It was done on purpose, Darwin said. Why? Why would he kill the captain? Without her makeup, her thin but still shapely legs poking out from under her robe, her delicate hands clasped together as if in prayer under her head. She looked like a vulnerable, half-starved runaway. He thought again as he often did. She was, in a way, rich in money, but too busy with success to be rich in friends. And with no real family, even her paper-thin, one-sided love for Luther continued to isolate her even more from a world of value. He felt a sadness for her. He decided not to disturb her and went to bed. The apprehensions that had earlier kept him awake were less now, and he fell to sleep. He didn't awake until she was next to him, spooned up, her feet to his back, one arm around his chest, the other under his pillow. Her robe was gone. He felt the heat of her body through her nightgown, the coldness of her feet she had tucked under his legs. Later he rolled over, slipping his arms around her, half asleep. She clutched him, crying briefly. He smelled her tears, the metallic scent of chemicals of her hair mixed with the sweetness of conditioner, the laundered smell of her nightgown mixed with the mortal smell of skin. In minutes they relaxed, arms and legs entwined, but comfortably. The second time he woke, in a half-sleep, he sensed her moving closer to him. His heart beat strongly until he fell asleep again, Sweeney's hand holding his. They slept with little motion for the rest of the night. He felt her leave him, go to the bathroom. Mid-morning daylight filtered through the slit in the closed draperies. A toilet flushed. She found a robe and paused at the door. Then she came back to the edge of the bed. Darwin closed his eyes as she lightly kissed his cheek. Thank God it's over, she whispered. The accident or their night together? He didn't know her meaning. The investigation was underway. The tragedy was an international mystery. The driver of the cigarette boat was never identified, nor was a body found. The boat had been stolen from a private marina only a few hours before the crash. 
Laszlo arrived later in the day, two hours after Luther arrived, and began investigating. Laszlo quickly determined that inquiries had been made about the couple who would be on the genoux. It would seem the attacker knew Luther was not on the boat. I don't get it, Darwin said. Laszlo waited until they were alone. He was sure organized crime was sending a message to specific people and to Luther. They wouldn't want to kill Luther, a source of potential payments. My God, Luther owed them tens of millions. Instead, they sent their message through action on family to stimulate payments. When debts were squared, they'd let misfortune happen to Luther where it may. A police investigation inquiry required all involved remain on the island, and it was days before Darwin could leave. Luther stayed the entire time with Sweeney for many days, and Laszlo remained close at hand as protection. When he could, Darwin went back to school and didn't see Sweeney again until weeks after he returned. Chapter 20 Sweeney's brush with death awakened feelings in Luther, and with spastic rapidity, Luther asked Sweeney to marry him. Within a month, he took her to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, where he met up with a 200-foot black yacht out of Boston owned by an Italian money magnet who made contemporary leather furniture. The main cabin had a dance floor and a Fratelli Ruffati pipe organ rumored to have been installed for the owner's mistress, who was an opera singer in Milano of international acclaim. Luther had reluctantly arranged, at Sweeney's insistence, that no paparazzi were to be in sight when the ship left dock to motor fifty miles out to sea. But on a slightly blustery day, twenty-four hours before departure, the press descended on the town, taking pictures almost non-stop. But Luther stated loudly the paparazzi were just impossible— but he couldn't hide his pleasure at all the attention, and everyone suspected he was the cause of the leak. At least they can't follow us out to sea, Luther said to Sweeney. The wedding party stayed below deck until the helicopter that trailed them for almost forty miles left. Darwin felt he was invited more as an assistant than a family member, although he did act as best man. Luther did not invite his family. His preparation had been too precipitous for that. Sweeney's mother did manage to come with two nurses in constant attendance, but she didn't seem to recognize Sweeney or understand the significance of the occasion. Sweeney's father still refused to speak to her, and she to him. Sweeney had not sent him an invitation. Granny was there, and arrived with her minister, who was to do the ceremony. Luther was a long-ago lapsed Catholic, with no context to any church. The bride wore a knee-length white satin dress flown in from Paris after hastily exchanged measurements and photos. She had a bouquet of red roses. Granny's minister got severely seasick, having to take to the bed, and the ship's captain performed the ceremony. The bride and groom and the wedding party spent two nights on the ship. On return to shore, the happy couple left for an undisclosed honeymoon spot, according to the press. But Luther really left for Texas and Sweeney went back to the estate, with Darwin responsible as her escort, plus Granny and the minister, in a private plane. Happy? Darwin asked Sweeney. He kept his promise. He said he'd marry me. You thought he might not? He seemed so against it at first. He knows your value, 
She smiled hesitantly and looked away. She was far too happy to ever doubt Luther's commitment to her. Chapter 21 Every Thursday, Darwin waited until after school to go by Mrs. Thomas's office to pick up his allowance, money that she now always had for him in cash. This Thursday, Mrs. Thomas greeted him and asked him to sit down. I don't have good news, Darwin. Luther's manager stopped the payments I'd arranged for your education and tuitions. Why? Luther has been making some investments. He says it's wise to include you. It will be used to ensure your future. Do you think he's done it, the investments? I've no way to know, and the manager says it's confidential. But the bank in Pittsburgh does my investments. Thank God your college trust is intact. I've checked. Luther can't get into that. I've talked to one of the trustees. They're concerned about Luther and his decisions. You should talk to the trustee again. Tell him your new concerns. I think he wants your input. He knew your parents well. But I need help with the technical stuff. Come by Monday. I'll set up a conference call. I'm going to find Luther, talk to him again. That night, Luther twice refused to see Darwin. Days later, Mrs. Thomas found Darwin before Laszlo dropped him off at school. I found a source to honor your support payments until we get straightened out with Luther and the trustees. You won't get in trouble with all these negotiations? It's okay. Granny's increasing her contribution. She told me not to tell you. And don't mention it to anyone else. Darwin ran to meet Laszlo with new affection for Granny and grateful that generosity had surfaced from beneath her volcanic-strewn surface. Chapter 22 Helen was doing tennis drills with the team at school when Carl came up wearing black tights under a lavender short skirt with an A-crew blouse with slashes of bright red. The top two buttons on the front were open. She had on black, calf-length boots. Helen waved and Carl smiled, indicating she would wait courtside until the drill was over. Uh, do you like it? Carl asked, meaning her outfit. Helen sat on the edge of a folding chair, sweat beating on her brow. She thought it gaudy with a lot of punk in the colors. Just great, she said, but not caring that she probably couldn't hide her distaste for the whole look Coral was trying for. You've got to lighten up on the threads, Coral said, aware of Helen's feelings. You're looking dowdy lately. What's urgent? Helen asked. Would you ask Darwin to see if he could get me an interview with Sweeney Pale? Why don't you ask him? I think I'd bomb. You get along good with him. He likes you, Helen said. I'm not sure most of the time. He certainly seems distracted around me. Helen propped her tennis racket against the side of the chair and wiped her hands on a towel. I don't know anything about what you do in interviews, Helen said. I'd explain all that to Sweeney Pale. Besides, Mr. Frampton will be with me. She must have a publicity team. Call them. Mr. Frampton did. They said she wasn't doing interviews for a while. Why? I don't know. Helen stood, picked up a racket. I've got to go. Will you? Just ask him to ask her if she'll grant an interview. 
then I can contact her. It's not much to ask. And he owes us. The family. Getting him into Exeter. We've done a hell of a lot for a nobody from Pittsburgh. I'll ask him when I see him, Helen said. Do it today. Mr. Frampton says he can go in the next-to-last issue of this year's excerpts. Helen agreed with a nod. She knew Darwin would be around. What did she care, anyway? She found Darwin in the computer lab and whispered to ask him to step outside. He looked surprised to see her. Would you do Coral a favor? It's her newspaper stuff. She wants to do an interview with Sweeney Pale. I think there's some number she can call. Sweeney's manager's office. They've turned her down. I don't know how successful I'd be. You know Pale well, and you know Coral. It's only for a school paper, but it would be big for Coral to have an interview. I imagine it would be the paper's first with a pop star of Sweeney Pale's stature. Darwin thought for a moment. Sure, I'll ask. Should I call you or Coral? Let Coral know. Helen didn't want to be involved. She didn't like Sweeney Pale. Darwin saw Sweeney in the evening. She was watching videos on MTV, studying her competition, taping and rewinding, taking notes, transcribing melody lines and chord changes. Can I talk to you? He asked. I'll be finished in a minute, she said. I'll be in my room. Sweeney knocked on his closed door and he opened up. He dressed to go out with Laszlo. Sweeney peered in. My God, I'd forgotten how small this is. This is no bigger than a doghouse. He smiled. Big enough. I thought you were supposed to get a suite upstairs. Does anyone but servants ever come here? I like it okay. It has to be noisy. Can't you hear the cars in the garage? Sometimes. I'll talk to Luther. He thinks this is good for the time being. He's using spare rooms for guests. Deplorable. She shook her head. What did you want? Coral Malvern. She's the daughter of Dr. Malvern, who's been helping me. Wants to do an interview for the school newspaper. The Exeter excerpts. They've stopped my interviews. I've been misinterpreted, ridiculed, called an airhead, and a slut. Publicity said no more interviews. It was hurting my image. This is high school. Uh, supervised. Would it help you? The family has been good to me. Dr. Malvern got me into Exeter with a few phone calls. I'd never have done it on my own. She looked away for a few seconds. I'll check. I'll call you tomorrow. Darwin took a call from Sweeney on his cell phone the next day. I talked to Coral, she said. Everything's okay with publicity. I think it will be fun. I owe you one, Sweeney. Sweeney paused. You sweet on this, Coral? Darwin laughed. You're the only one I'm sweet on. You scare me, she said. Are you doing the interview in the school? Too much commotion. Coral's coming to the house. Well, thanks. Let me know how it goes. Darwin saw the interview entourage in two cars weaved down the drive to the front door. He went to find Sweeney. She was in the kitchen sitting at the staff table with a mug of coffee. They're here, Darwin said. I asked Henri to fix some refreshments for them. He was definitely put out. 
like it wasn't my place. The maid came to announce the arrival. Where are you going to have them set up, Darwin asked Sweeney. I thought in the dining room. It's only audio. Come on, sit in. Darwin greeted Coral, who introduced him to Mr. Frampton, her journalism teacher. Two student audio techs set up equipment on a tarp they had draped over the table. Mr. Frampton explained they would transcribe the audio. My people would like to edit the transcript, Sweeney said. Approve it before it's printed. She asked Darwin to check if the lawyer had arrived. I have to insist we make this official. Depending on the quality, we might have to limit the distribution, too. Only to be used for the school paper. Frampton arranged chairs. Coral across from Sweeney. He sat close to Coral to coach her. Sweeney's lawyer came and papers were signed. He left before they started. Darwin positioned himself in a straight-back chair against the wall. The interview went for 40 minutes. It was cordial. There were many questions about Sweeney's personal life, some of which he did not answer. The professional life questions seemed routine. Carl asked about Luther and what it was like living in the mansion. It's wonderful, Sweeney said. Darwin was surprised. She sounded sincere and without doubt. But that was Sweeney, always on the bright side. Sweeney had refreshments served, and Coral and the crew left a short time after. What did you think? Sweeney asked Darwin. Seemed to go well, he said. She wasn't too bad as an interviewer, she said. The Frampton guy kept whispering to her. Didn't you find that distracting? A little. But it's the school paper. No big deal. The evening after the interview, Helen came home late to the Malverns after school and tennis practice and saw Coral watching TV in the family room. How'd it go? Helen asked. Have you ever been in that place? It's huge. Tacky, though. No taste. Irony, thought Helen. Coral did not have enough taste to criticize anyone. Coral was in shorts and a tight T-shirt without a bra. Was she nice? Helen asked. Uh, nice enough. Even when Mr. Frampton kept eyeing her like he wanted to fuck her. But you asked the questions? She had a lawyer before we started. They had all sorts of papers for me to sign. Did you see the guy? Darwin? No, the football player. I guess he's not around much. But she did talk about him. And she seemed happy. Will it come out this month? Six days. I'll have plenty of extra copies. I'd like to read it, Ellen said. Chapter 23 More than a month later, Darwin went to the Malverns to get Dr. Malvern's advice on college and med school preparation and go over draft letters. Dr. Malvern and Darwin ate delivered pizza at the breakfast table in the kitchen as they worked. An MD-PhD I knew in med school said he'd take you in in one of his laboratories during the summer, Dr. Malvern said. I told him you had programming skills, new statistics. Uh, that's true, isn't it? Darwin nodded. Uh, there's a chance you might get a paper or two out of it. He's worked in angiogenesis. He can use it in a subordinate's laboratory. Jason Ono. Ono takes on two high school students each summer. A few work with him part-time for two years or more, and even through college, Dr. Malvern said as they were eating. 
It was a golden opportunity. Darwin asked how he might get the most out of the lab. But Dr. Malvern didn't know exactly. He'd been clinical for too long. But he did know a student who'd been accepted to Yale for medical school who'd worked there. He'd ask him. Coral came in through the dining room hall. Her eyes were red. She'd been crying. She handed an open letter stuffed in a torn envelope to her father who began reading. I wish I'd never done it, she said to Darwin without looking at him. What's the matter, Darwin asked. She's suing, Coral said, finally turning to him. Who? Darwin said. Sweeney Pale, Dr. Malvern said, holding up the letter. Slander, breach of contract. She can't do that, Coral said. Don't be stupid, Dr. Malvern said. They can, and they are. I know this firm. It's the best. Coral wept, her hands covering her face. Was it for show? Darwin believed Coral's interior was leather tough. Her core is hard as stone, and her lust for anything hedonistic as large as the universe. Difficult to believe she was really distressed. Pull yourself together, Dr. Malvern said. Who's this Mr. Frampton? Journalism, Coral said. He teaches journalism. Why is his name with yours? I don't know. Coral, Dr. Malvern said with disbelief. It was always possible Coral had seduced Frampton, consummated or not. He edited the interview transcript and sent it to the celebrity star. Did you know? Coral hesitated. He must have gotten paid. Did he pay you? Coral shook her head no. Well, we have to deal with this now, Coral. They're asking two and a half million in damages. Coral began crying again. Dr. Malvern turned to Darwin. Find out what you can from this pale woman, he demanded, and call me. Sweeney was sitting by the pool when Darwin got home. Where have you been? she asked. You're suing Coral Malvern? He dragged a deck chair over and sat down beside her. Didn't you hear what happened? Darwin shook his head no. They changed the transcript. They hinted I was promiscuous. They made it sound as if I'd hung out at the compound to seek sex from men, and I was frigid with Luther. Then they turned my praise for Big Brother Calhoun into a personal attack on him and his talent. I was jealous of Big Brother, they said. All to a gossip rag online that went to every music fan with a cell phone. I can't believe she did that, Darwin said. We compared the tape interview to the transcript. She may not have been the only one, but I don't see how she couldn't have known, at least suspected. And we don't know how much she got paid for the interview from Celebrity Star, but the going rate for celebrities is twenty-five to $200,000. She said she didn't get any money. Then that creep who was with her cashed in. I'm glad we're suing. She's innocent, Darwin said. She's not even an adult yet, at least in the head. She's not innocent, Darwin. I'm sorry. She and Frampton signed a contract that would allow us to review and make corrections to the transcript, and that the transcript would be published only in the school paper unless we approved more, and it was emphasized the transcript we approved would have no alteration and there would be no monetary gain. I did her a favor. The family stressed, Darwin said. Reap what you sow, Sweeney paused. She stared at Darwin for a few seconds. It, it won't hurt you, will it? Your schooling? 
Not really at Exeter. I don't know about med school. And her father? I don't know. If they take it out on you, they're the kind of people you shouldn't depend on. Darwin stood. You know, you're right, Sweeney. It wasn't right. I don't know how we could have known, but it was a mistake. Helen was reading in the rec room when her mother brought in Darwin. Her father watched a pro football game on a giant plasma screen. Her father muted the TV. What did you find out from that pale woman, uh, he asked Darwin. She's glad she's suing. She says lawyers compared the tape of the interview to the transcript. The transcript that was sold to Celebrity Star was altered. That they have a contract that stated there would be no monetary gain and required approval of transcript. Sweeney feels she did quarrel a favor. Dr. Malvern took a deep breath and sighed. Ah, uh, that's not good enough, Darwin. She seems to have a solid legal argument, and she feels betrayed. But to sue? The gossips made false speculative comments about her and Luther, and she was hurt. That goes with the territory. I can't believe you can't get her to drop at least Coral from the suit. Darwin looked away. Make it right, Darwin. You can't put Coral through this. I think Sweeney's kindness was used. She didn't even charge when the going rate is twenty-five to two hundred thousand dollars. Look, you're like family, Darwin. Darwin's gaze didn't waver. It was not right. If that's your decision, then you've seen the last you can expect from me, boy, Dr. Malvern said. I don't think it's abnormal to expect a little gratitude. You'll always have my gratitude, Darwin said. He paused, as if to offer his hand, but backed away, turned, and left. Helen sat in silence with her father for more than a minute, until his breathing slowed. That's unfair, Helen finally said. I hope you mean a suit against the high school girl that this innocent family will at least partially be responsible for if it ever gets settled. About what you said to Darwin, Helen said. Christ, he could do more, Dr. Malvern said. Cora was wrong, Helen said. She knew about Frampton. She didn't try to stop it. Don't go against your sister. I don't like what you're doing to Darwin. That's what's unfair. I don't want to talk about it anymore, her father said. But the next morning after breakfast and before she went to church, her father came up to her before she left. You were right, he said. I shouldn't take it out on Darwin. You're still going to help him with medical school? I'll think about it, he said. A few days later, Darwin received a written apology from Dr. Malvern, along with copies of edited letters of recommendation he'd written for his summer job in the lab and for college interviews. The next week, Darwin saw Helen at the school library. She came to him. Thanks, she said. He was confused. For what? The lawyers dropped Coral from the suit. Only Frampton is left. I'm glad, Helen, but it's news to me. She smiled. I think we can all return to a normal family now. Darwin saw Sweeney the same evening. Why the change of heart? he asked. You were right. Coral's just an innocent child, she said, squeezing his arm and looking as if she might flash a wink.
she'd done it for him. This ends Episode 1 of Guardian of Deceit, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of Guardian of Deceit and the iTunes and Google Play feeds at storyinfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, and this podcast is produced by storyandliteraryfiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.